With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Welcome to Like It Is. In an earlier program that we ran as a special three-part series entitled A Decade of Struggle, we included an interview with a man who worked as an informer for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We didn't show all of that interview, however, because of time limitations. We do feel, nonetheless, that we should air as much as possible of that interview because of the gravity of the information it contains. This edition of Like It Is will be devoted solely to that end. The name of the informant that we interviewed is Dothard Perry, also known as Ed Riggs, also known as Bill Perry, also known as Othello. He worked for the FBI as an informer who infiltrated various black organizations during the 1960s. Ours is the only full-face on-camera interview that he has conducted thus far. At this juncture, Perry began talking about a man called Elmer Geronimo Pratt, who Perry says is serving time for a crime he couldn't have committed going to allow a person like Elmer Pratt to sit up nine years in jail for nothing. The man did nothing except that he was a leader in the Black Panther Party and they wanted him out of the way. They? The Bureau. So what happened? Well, there was a murder, right? The murder happened in Los Angeles. Elmer Pratt was in Oakland, okay? Elmer Pratt was under 24-hour surveillance, both physical and FE, electronic, okay? The, the Bureau, at any time after LAPD picked up Elmer Pratt, could have went down there and said, hey, look, you made a mistake. The guy was in Oakland, okay? They didn't. They sit back and let it happen because they wanted the man out of the way. It, 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 it's sick. Here's a man that got a bronze star and a silver star. Pratt. Pratt, right, Elmer Geronimo Pratt. So when he got out of the service, he joined the Black Panther Party because it was a cause that he thought was just and he thought was right. Possibly, and I'm not saying, don't let me paint him a saint, the man possibly did some things. But he did not commit a murder. You know? And let me tell you something about Elmer Pratt. Uh, and, and this is from personal observation. The man was honest, the man was upright, and his word was his bound. You know? And he wouldn't go around doing a jive-ass robbery on a damn tennis court and, and kill someone? 
that's just not Elmer Pratt. He was set up, he was railroaded from the get. I'm surprised they didn't try to kill him in prison. And I'll be surprised if they don't attempt to do it now. Because now people are starting to make waves. Finally, people are starting to realize, after the man's been in there nine years, and oh, oh by the way, four, four years of that was in solitary confinement. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, May 13, 2021. So I have been told this is our 11th study session on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Gijaga Pratt. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning from the great Gil Noble, Like It Is, uh, their segment that is a little less than two hours on Cointelpro, uh, where they speak with uh, lots of folks, Dick Gregory, and they go through some of the uh, church uh, reports, church senate reports uh, from the 1970s, 1974, I believe, uh, where they're going over the Pro operations against individuals like Geronimo Pratt. Uh, at the time that that Gil Noble segment uh, was aired, Pratt had only been in greater confinement for about nine years or so. At the point we are at the story, he's been in greater confinement for 20 years for a crime, as you just heard, that he absolutely did not commit and that enforcement officials knew from the very beginning that he did not commit uh, the segment with Gil Noble. It is available uh, on YouTube. You can watch it in its entirety. Lots of information. Again, continue to say uh, for folks, if you're not, you know, very well informed about Pro and how that relates to counter racism, white supremacy, uh, then man, you have uh, we are all still learning, catching up to do. YouTube is there. Go check it out. You can get cracking, take some notes, make some bookmarks maybe. Uh, but Cointel Pro, we should all be very informed uh, about that operation. Uh, with that said, we will go ahead and get started. Jack Olson, Last Man Standing. Biography on the great Geronimo Pratt and with a lot of information about Johnny L. Cochran Jr. as well. Uh, context of white supremacy. This is audio segment one. We shall begin. Chapter 49, Exile Again When some of the chatter and dissension began to subside inside the walls, the California Department of Corrections quietly dissolved the Vietnam veterans of San Quentin. Pratt and the other co-founder, Sneaky White, were ordered to pack their bags. After a wake-up call at 3 a.m. and a jouncing ride chained to a stanchion in the back of a van, Geronimo found himself in the company of 5,500 felons in the California Correctional Institution at Tehachapi, 350 miles southeast of San Francisco. The earthquake-shattered facility had been rebuilt but inmates lived in a permanent haze of stone dust in the thin air of the 4,000-foot altitude. When Geronimo began to wheeze during his celestinics, 
he realized that his new residence would take some acclimatizing. Stuart Hanlon learned to dread the seven-hour drive across the dispiriting countryside through Bakersfield with its acres of oil derricks and pumping jacks and on to the penal institution nine miles southeast of the little town of Tehachapi. The prison was set in a range of brushy hills and low granite mountains where the locals raised daffodils, gladioli, fuji apples, cattle, ostriches, rodeo cowboys, and prison guards. Hanlon had never felt comfortable in landlocked towns, and some of the locals were a little rough-hewn for his tastes. The Tehachapi staffers seemed more openly racist than the personnel at the other state prisons. On one of his first visits, he was accompanied by Valerie West of the Partisan Defense Committee, a hard-working Pratt advocate. When they joined Geronimo in an attorney's room, Hanlon bought a bag of potato chips from a dispensing machine. No, no, a guard called out. The legal room's for work. You can't eat in here. You're full of shit, Hanlon said with his usual diplomacy. The rules say we can share machine food. Give it a try. If you eat, I'll lock you up. An hour or so later, in the middle of an intense planning session about another petition of habeas corpus, West absent-mindedly picked up a potato chip. The guard terminated the visit and escorted her to a holding cell. We drove all day to get here, Hanlon protested. The irate lawyers took the matter to the U.S. District Judge Stanley Weigel in San Francisco, who was still considering Pratt's claim against the CDC for discriminatory practices. Once again, the old judge ruled for the prisoner, castigating Tehachapi officials for violating the spirit of attorney-client visitation rules. It would always remain in Hanlon's memory as... The potato chip caper. By New Year's Day, 1990, Pratt was approaching his 20th year of incarceration and Hanlon was in his 15th year on the case. In the two decades since the original arrest, Geronimo had become an anachronism. The radical protest had faded from style in the Reagan era, and many of Pratt's fellow Panthers had exchanged sidearms and berets for attaché cases and cell phones. The young men, who fought alongside Columbia student Hanlon in the Battle of Morningside Heights, now drove BMWs and read the Wall Street Journal. Geronimo had been accustomed to meeting with his lawyer three or four times a week at San Quentin, but now they seldom saw each other. Sometimes Pratt seemed resentful, and Hanlon tried to understand. In an average year, Geronimo took up a third of my practice. I was still doing too much pro bono, and my annual billings were never more than $50,000. Kathy and I had two sons, 
Liam and Rory and thank God she built up a good practice of her own. But she always had time for Geronimo. I never wrote a single pleading that she didn't improve. It was as though the Hanlon family was a cottage industry and our product was the Pratt case. I would make that long drive to Tehachapi and try to explain all this to him, but he never quite understood. He seemed to think I should visit him two or three times a week, and if I wasn't actually at his side in the visiting room, I'd abandoned him. At first, I thought it was a problem of ego, but then I realized it was something more familiar, something common to long-term prisoners. They start getting obsessed with control, the need for it, the lack of it. They're told when to eat, sleep, shower, and shave. They're told when they can have visitors and when they can't and when they can use the phone and for how long. Imagine a life where you're almost totally helpless. A lot of my problems with G came down to that and it led to some arguments. I was happy to let him feel he was running the show but now and then it got ugly. Hanlon kept in close touch with Johnny Cochran, but neither could decide on a next step. Late at night, he would phone Cochran in New York or Miami or wherever his expanding clientele had taken him. We spent hundreds of bucks on long distance feeling sorry for ourselves, Cochran recalled. This case was killing us, I swear. We took it harder than Geronimo. He's the strongest man I've ever met, and Hanlon's a close second. I've never seen a lawyer fight for his client as long and as hard as Stu. We still faced the same old mystery. For years, we've been coming up with overpowering evidence and overpowering law, taking it into court and losing. The Pratt attorneys wondered how long their client could survive the strain without permanent psychological damage. I can't sleep, Geronimo complained after he'd been at his new address for two months. The wind blows right down the valley the way it used to come off the Vietnam highlands. Every time I hear a helicopter, I duck. His lawyers arranged for an examination by a private psychologist. After one meeting, Paul Kohler, Ph.D., reported that the client appeared to be experiencing dissociative experiences. In a battery of tests, including the Rorsarch Inkblot and Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the psychologist found symptoms of intrusive imagery, nightmares and night terrors, amnesia for several combat experiences, a startle response, and hypervigilance. They were all part of the PTSD syndrome. Kohler noted that Pratt's intense idealism and preoccupation with justice and fairness were common in combat veterans under stress. 
I think it's catching, Hamlin told Pratt at Tehachapi after they discussed the report. I've been feeling depressed as hell. What's the matter, man? Hanlon said that he was beginning to doubt his own approach to the case. I'm not sure I'm giving you the representation you deserve. I've won a string of trials, but I can't seem to win for you. Cochran thinks it's time we filed another petition for habeas corpus. Well, we already got slapped in the mouth three times. How many goddamn writs can we file? And what are we going to use for new evidence? By 1991, Hanlon had become one of the Bay Area's best-known criminal attorneys, specializing in freeing the unjustly convicted. Korean-American Shoal So Lee had been convicted for a murder he didn't commit. At a second trial, Hanlon gained his release. He represented the controversial Symbionese Liberation Army leader Russell Little and other high-profile clients. The Pratt tragedy was as frustrating to him as it was to Cochran. I think I may be out of ideas, he confessed to Geronimo. We've been together a long time, Pratt said softly. I understand, man. You're my number one client, G, but maybe I should take a back seat for a while. Geronimo looked stricken. A back seat to who? Well, yeah, that's the problem. Chapter 50 Fresh Blood Home again, Hanlon took a friendly phone call from an old New York friend, Robert Bloom, a crusading lawyer who was known for his successful defense of ex-Panther Richard Daruba Moore. Bloom was a hands-on operator who sometimes appeared in a free Nelson Mandela t-shirt and put impassioned messages on his telephone answering machine about the sorry state of race relations in the United States. In a case with close parallels to Pratt's, Daruba Moore had claimed that he was set up by the New York City Police Department and Pro for shooting two officers. He'd served 19 years in prison before he was freed. Where the hell are you calling from, Bobby? Hanlon asked. I needed a change of scene. I moved to Berkeley. You're across the bay? Yep. Hanlon told him to sit tight. I'll be right over. I got something that might interest you. Within a week, Robert Bloom had signed on to the Pratt defense team. He hauled 25 boxes of legal material across the Bay Bridge and set to work with sharpened pencils and legal pads. With each promising discovery, he phoned Hanlon, only to be told that the courts had already ruled on the item and found it insufficient. We need new grounds, Bobby, Hanlon reminded him. 
the idealistic Bloom dug into the files for six months, then drove 280 miles north to Pelican Bay State Prison in the old logging town of Crescent City to interview William Tyrone Hutchinson. Under patient questioning, the lanky former panther revealed what he told police years earlier, that he'd heard his boyhood friends, Swilly and Hatter, admit that they'd been at the tennis court on the murder night. They described a man and woman shaking in fear and crying just before they were shot. They referred to the people as pigs. They were laughing about it. Slogging through the massive record, Bloom found some of Richard Kalustian's handwritten trial notes, subpoenaed in earlier actions but largely overlooked by the Pratt legal team. During a pre-trial interview with LAPD Sergeant Dwayne Rice, Kalustian had written that Rice had been trying to get info from J.B. Julius Butler for about one to two years. The deputy DA's notes revealed that in August 1969, J.B. delivered the letter. J.B. said, These guys are after me and I may get killed. If something happens to me, I want you to read this letter and give it to my mother. Bloom wondered about the phrase, trying to get info. Did it mean that Sergeant Rice had been attempting to recruit Butler as his informer? Did he succeed? In Kalustian's notes, the question went unanswered. A phrase near the end seemed more promising. It all began when FBI saw J.B. give letter to Rice. They asked for letter and R. refused to give it. R. told FBI they could get it by making official request from department. They didn't. Bloom wondered what Kalustian meant by it all began. The beginning of an FBI LAPD plot to neutralize Pratt? The frame-up? The whole case? A line from the original trial clicked in Bloom's mind, but it took him hours to relocate it in the thousands of pages of testimony he borrowed from Hanlon's office. In Kalustian's cross-examination of a panther named Michael David Penwell, the deputy DA had told the witness, the FBI's never been involved in this case, and you know it. Well, Bloom thought, if... It all began with FBI agents observing the transfer of the letter. How could Kalustian say in court that the FBI had never been involved? He wondered what an impartial judge would make of the contradiction. Bloom recalled that Dwayne Rice had spoken highly of his superior and fellow African-American, Captain Ed Henry, whose safe had held the controversial Butler letter for more than a year. 
in a revealing interview, Henry told Bloom that he felt bad about Geronimo Pratt and that the case still troubled him. The retired captain recalled that Julius Julio Butler had been an informant for the Los Angeles Police Department from 1966 to 1969, encompassing the years of the Bunchy Carter, John Huggins killings, and the tennis court murder. Butler had provided useful information on community unrest and the Black Panthers. Henry mentioned other activities by the mayor of Adams Boulevard. Twice, Butler had turned in illegal firearms, including two automatic rifles and a Thompson submachine gun, plus a thousand rounds of 45 caliber ammunition. Asked if Butler had acted as an agent provocateur on behalf of the LAPD, Henry said, in effect, yes. My thoughts at the time were that I didn't think Julius Butler cared what happened to the Panthers. Bloom left the interview session carrying a signed declaration in his briefcase. It was good evidence that Butler had lied on the witness stand, but it wasn't proof. He would have to keep looking. At a San Francisco cocktail party, the transplanted New Yorker fell into conversation with Patricia Richards, an investigator and paralegal. Bloom told her that he was working on the Pratt case and listened politely as she recounted her own connection. Her boss, Panther attorney Charles Gary, had won a 1975 court order admitting him to the FBI's wiretap record room in San Francisco's federal building. Gary had sent Richards and another investigator to peruse the logs. She told Bloom that she'd seen an entry that specifically placed Pratt in Oakland on the night of the tennis court murder. Bloom said, Are you sure? Positive. My God, Pat, why didn't you tell somebody? Richards said she'd been under the impression that Pratt's team already had the information. It was in plain sight, she said. Bloom remembered former FBI agent Wesley Swearingen's shock at finding that the wiretap logs had disappeared. It's not in plain sight anymore, he told Richards. In a sworn declaration prepared for Bloom and Hanlon, the female private investigator said that she and investigator David Feckheimer had gone to the federal building in May 1975 and were ushered into a small room. During our examination of the wiretap logs, I observed a particular entry that reflected that at 5.30 p.m. on December 18, 1968, a female made a telephone call to what was known as the Santa Rosa House in Oakland, California, and that she had a conversation with Geronimo at that time while Geronimo was at the Santa Rosa House. I recall that there was at least one FBI agent in the room with us at the time 
I noticed this entry. We were not permitted to remove any documents from the room and I assumed that he was present to make certain that no documents were removed. I pointed out the entry to Mr. Feckheimer and he looked at it but we did not discuss it at the time because of the presence of the FBI agent in the room. We did discuss it later. The building that was the subject of the wiretap was known as the Santa Rosa House because it was located on Santa Rosa Street in Oakland. It was the location where Bobby Seale, one of the Black Panther leaders, was staying at the time. In her declaration, Richards took pains to explain why she hadn't revealed the information until meeting Robert Bloom at a party. I did not realize the importance of the log entry that I had seen because I was not aware that proof of the entries in the Los Angeles wiretap were not available during prior litigation. I had always believed that the materials had been available to Geronimo and the courts, but that the courts had declined to grant relief for reasons related to Geronimo's inability to prove that state authorities were aware of the federal wiretaps. That position made no sense to me, but it is the position I mistakenly believed that courts had taken. Mr. Bloom also explained to me that the main witness for the prosecution, Julius Butler, had testified that Geronimo had seen him face-to-face -face and spoken to him at his shop in central Los Angeles just prior to the crime. It is clear that the wiretap log entry that I saw with Mr. Feckheimer conclusively proves that Mr. Butler had to be lying about Geronimo speaking to him in central Los Angeles. Had I known the true circumstances, I would have spoken to Geronimo's attorneys long ago. Her colleague David Feckheimer's affidavit confirmed every detail of the visit. Encouraged by the new information, Bloom sortied to the dangerous streets of the Oakland ghetto and interviewed three of the Panther leaders who'd deliberately remained silent about the Pratt case. David Hilliard, former Panther chief of staff, admitted carrying feelings of guilt and remorse since my refusal to help Geronimo in 1972. He said he had a clear memory of Pratt's stay in Oakland. His sworn declaration verified that Geronimo had attended a party meeting on the night of the Santa Monica killing, a meeting Hilliard believed was at his home. Bobby Seale, co-founder of the BPP, recalled the same scene. I knew, of course, that Geronimo could not have committed this crime. I felt very conflicted about testifying, but I followed the directive of the party. Emory Douglas, former Panther Minister of Culture, attributed his own long silence to Huey Newton's warning, 
not to associate or help Geronimo in any way. In the next few days, the busy Bloom collected three more declarations from Seal's brother, John, Landon Williams, and Harvey McClendon, all confirmed Pratt's presence in Oakland on the evening of the crime. Stuart Hanlon and Johnny Cochran were ecstatic about Bloom's new evidence. This is it, Stu, Cochran said in a call from Los Angeles. This is what we need to get back to court. I told Geronimo we needed fresh blood, Hanlon told his colleague. After all these years, wouldn't it be something if my biggest contribution was Bobby Bloom? With a little help from Pratt's two veteran counselors, Bloom produced a 147-page petition for writ of habeas corpus and attached 300 pages of exhibits, including the Feckheimer, Richards, and Henry statements. Bloom quoted juror Gene Hamilton as complaining that a member of the jury had exerted undue pressure on her and another juror outside the deliberation room, in itself an argument for a new trial. As for Julius Carl Butler, Bloom abandoned formal legalese and said simply, Documents show that this man is a liar. To Hanlon and Cochran, the petition seemed a little long on left-wing philosophy, but that was a matter of personal style. It wouldn't have been Bobby without the polemics, Hanlon said. He wasn't a civil rights attorney just in the courtroom. He ate the subject, lived it, and breathed it, and his record spoke for itself. This time around, the Pratt legal team decided to bypass the Los Angeles courts and filed its petition for habeas corpus in San Francisco. Cochran explained, when you go to court in L.A., the odds are that the judge is a former deputy D.A. It's an old boys club, and the last thing those guys are going to do is rule against each other. Dick Kalustian was not only an ex-D.A., but a sitting judge in the same jurisdiction. How could Geronimo get justice in L.A.? Late on Sunday, June 2, 1991, Hanlon read the final version of the Bloom petition to his client in Tehachapi. Geronimo hadn't been enthusiastic about Bloom personally, partly because the old-school lawyer from New York didn't believe in hand-holding his clients and partly because both men were opinionated hardheads, but he was impressed by Bloom's dedication and research. That's heavy stuff, Stu, he said. How the hell can the courts turn this down? Hanlon said, I don't know, gee. He was thinking, let me count the ways. The next afternoon's San Francisco Examiner proclaimed, Pratt's lawyers say they have new evidence. Former Panther, framed by FBI, L.A. cops in 68 murder, they say. 
the Morning Chronicle of June 4 headlined, Lawyer's Surprise in Black Panther Case. New evidence puts Pratt far from murder site. Both articles ran long. California was beginning to pay attention. 24 days after the habeas corpus petition was filed in San Francisco Superior Court, Hanlon and Bloom received a single typewritten page entitled, In Response, Petition of Elmer Geronimo Pratt for a Writ of Habeas Corpus, Order to Show Cause. Their decorum slipped as they read the words. It is ordered that Mr. B. J. Bunnell, Warden of Tehachapi, Prison of the California Department of Corrections, prepare a points and authorities to show cause before this court why the relief prayed for should not be granted. Respondent's return is to be filed on or before July 27, 1991. At last, Pratt's case would be argued before a neutral judge in a part of California where he'd received a fair press, hadn't been depicted as the Prince of Darkness, and was considered by many to be a living martyr. If his team prevailed, the next step would be an evidentiary hearing where the facts could be presented in their entirety minus the restrictions that had hobbled the defense in earlier proceedings, both federal and state. When Cochran heard the good news by phone, he told Hanlon, You and Bloom can examine anybody you want, but Julius Butler is mine. A few days later, the court clerk phoned the lawyers with unsettling news. The California Attorney General had demanded the transfer of the petition to Los Angeles. They're shopping for a friendly venue, of course, Cochran told Hanlon over the phone. How can we stop them? It's an L.A. case, Stu. They have every right. It's up to the court. San Francisco Superior Court judges were not unaware of the geographical issues. At their weekly procedural meeting, they voted by a narrow margin to grant the Attorney General's request. The case records were assembled and sent by registered mail arriving in Los Angeles on August 14. The next morning, a Los Angeles judge delivered his ruling. In Robert Bloom's weighty collection of evidence, argument, documentation, and scholarship, Superior Court Judge Gary Klausner, an alumnus of the DA's office, had found insufficient grounds to grant relief. Pratt and his lawyers were back where they started. Hanlon and Bloom rushed into court in San Francisco to argue that their dire predictions had come true. Once again, the Old Boy Network in Los Angeles had denied their client due process of law. Hanlon told the court what we alleged would happen, that Mr. Pratt could not get a fair hearing there, actually did happen. 
his emergency petition for writ of habeas corpus was denied. The city of Oakland responded to the dispiriting news with a proclamation declaring Geronimo Pratt Day. Panther leaders who'd signed new affidavits for Pratt joined actor Danny Glover and other public figures at a meeting at Bethlehem Lutheran Church to denounce the latest ruling. The Examiner headlined its article, Former Panthers Speak Out for Pratt supporters say his murder conviction was an FBI setup. Encouraged by the support, Bloom, Hanlon, and Cochran churned up more legal citations and references and asked the Second Appellate District Court of Appeal, the same bank of judges that had produced the L. Thaxton Hansen opinion, to order the lower court to reopen the case. The request was denied. The Pratt team's last gasp was a petition for a writ of mandate to the friendlier First District Court of Appeal in San Francisco. Five members of the Congressional Black Caucus urged the justices to find for Pratt on behalf of justice and equity. Coretta Scott King wrote, our nation cannot afford to tolerate another incident of gross racial injustice in the court system if our legal system is to have credibility for Americans of all races. The Reverend Jesse L. Jackson declared on behalf of his National Rainbow Coalition that it was an honor to join the crusade for justice for Geronimo. I know it's dark, he wrote, but Isaiah tells us the morning comes. The first district court denied the Pratt petition in a single sentence. Geronimo kept track of the losses in his cell at Tehachapi. It's okay, Stu, he told his disconsolate lawyer by phone but the latest courtroom setback was taken hard by every other Pratt except the matriarchal Eunice, who simply regarded the news as a suggestion from God that certain members of the family weren't praying hard enough. Geronimo's older brother Jack had begun a new life, teaching and preaching, including regular visits to the Morgan City Jail. Jack agreed with his mother and devout sister Jacqueline that we can pray him out of prison, but the latest word from California gave him nightmares. Suddenly, I was in the hole with my brother. I couldn't take more than two or three steps. I tried to hug him, but he was gone. I was locked down alone. I woke up screaming. The Cal State graduate and computer expert confided to his mother, I don't know if I can take it anymore. It's too hard seeing Gerard in my dreams. The 85-year-old woman fixed her second-born son with a cold stare. You don't know if you can take it? She said, well, 
Gerard's taking it, isn't he? Listen to you, Mama. Every great man had his time of trial, starting with Jesus. Your brother has to undergo the fire to make him strong. The Lord has big plans for Gerard Pratt. Jack felt ashamed. Yes, ma'am, he said. Even in the early stages of losing her mind, his mother made good sense. Chapter 51 New Centurion The Reverend James McCloskey sat in his second-floor office above the signs for Talbot's Kids Shop and Edith's Lingerie on Nassau Street in Princeton and thought about God and Roger Keith Coleman. For 15 years, McCloskey and his Centurion Ministries had labored diligently for those he called the Imprisoned Innocent. With his investigators, he'd been responsible for freeing 14 men and one woman. Roger Coleman, a dirt-poor coal miner who'd been convicted of murder in Grundy, Virginia, was one of his failures. McCloskey had battled the state of Virginia for years and was at the doomed man's side five minutes before his electrocution on May 20, 1992. The crusading minister had been so shaken that he checked himself into a retreat center in Pennsylvania to ponder the central questions, where was God for Roger? How can there be a just and loving God when innocent men are put to death and there's so much suffering in the world? It was an ancient religious question. Through the years, theologians had labeled the paradoxical subject theodicy and produced libraries of answers, but none satisfied the troubled McCloskey. After a week of prayer and meditation, he reached the same unsettling conclusion that he'd reached years before in Princeton Theological Seminary. The question of theodicy had no answer. The only way Christ even touches on this subject is when he says very matter-of-factly in the Sermon on the Mount that the rain falls on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on the good and evil. Maybe that's not an answer. It's just the way it is. Back in Centurion Ministries' office in the Red Brick Building in New Jersey, he was just settling into his daily routine when the phone rang. A man named Robert Bloom was calling from California. Only once during his career had James McCloskey wasted his time and skimpy resources in an effort to free a person who later proved to be guilty. He'd resolved not to make the same mistake again and told Bloom that he wouldn't even consider the Geronimo Pratt case till he saw hard evidence. A copy of the unsuccessful petition for a writ of habeas corpus reached Princeton in two days, 
and the minister read it overnight in his monastic room on campus. It was highly polemical, he said later. But good stuff. It definitely got my attention. I wondered what kind of judge could ignore something so persuasive. The bulky transcript of the original 1972 trial arrived a few days later, and McCloskey read it in one gulp, his mood gradually darkening. To me, the transcript was legal pornography. What the hell was wrong with the jury? The judge! Here you had two of the worst contaminants in our justice system. Second-hand confession, which usually comes from opportunists looking for a payoff, and inflated eyewitness identifications, which usually come from good people under the influence of bad cops and prosecutors. Julius Butler might as well have carried a sign, Snitch and Liar. Barbara Reed and Kenneth Olson were both dubious witnesses. McCloskey noticed the varying physical characteristics that had been attributed to the shorter killer and drew up a list. At one time or another, the shooter had been described as dark, light, or medium. He was clean-shaven, wore a mustache and goatee, or only a mustache. He had a prominent nose, a medium nose, a small nose, or a thin nose. He had normal lips, thin lips, thick lips. He had no facial scars, one scar or two scars. His hairline was straight or he had a widow's peak. He wore an Eisenhower jacket, bush jacket, safari jacket, trench coat, or sports jacket. After repeated conferences among witnesses, detectives, and prosecutors, after long studies of suggestive photo laydowns, and after a conspicuous failure to put Geronimo Pratt in a live show-up, the descriptions had blended into a homogenized finished product suitable for courtroom use, enabling Kenneth Olson and Barbara Reed to point to the defense table and declare in ringing tones that the killer was the man sitting right over there. In his work, McCloskey had encountered the same phenomenon again and again. Prisons were dotted with men and women who'd been convicted after the authorities suborned perjury and distorted evidence to convict those they sincerely believed to be guilty. The more corrupt the tampering, the louder these public servants proclaimed later that they'd acted solely in the interests of justice. Sometimes McCloskey wished he'd studied more psychology. At the suggestion of an old friend, CBS News producer Lowell Bergman of 60 Minutes, the crusading minister, flew to California 
to meet with Pratt. He was surprised at what he found. I had this image of a fire-breathing black panther, but Geronimo was so moderate, so calm, so at peace with himself and the world. For the first time, I realized that the panthers weren't really anti-white. He came across as completely non-racial. I said, Geronimo, how in the world did somebody like you end up in a place like this? He told me it was because of his sins in Vietnam. He said, Reverend, I'm in hell because of what I did over there. Before making a final commitment to the case, McCloskey consulted with somebody he deeply respected. For three and a half years, he'd worked with Los Angeles Deputy DA Peter Bozenick on a matter that helped to bring Centurion Ministries into national prominence. Peter and I had met when I was looking at the case of Clarence Chance and Benny Powell, two Los Angeles African Americans who'd served 17 years for murder. Ira Rayner was the DA at the time and Peter convinced him to take another look at the case. No district attorney likes to second-guess his predecessors and run the risk of wasting the taxpayers' money. Peter laid his own job on the line and helped us convince Rayner that Benny and Clarence were innocent. Without a couple of conscientious guys like Peter Bozenick and Ira Rayner, they'd still be serving time. So, I had lunch with Peter in L.A. He said, what are you working on? I said, Geronimo Pratt. His whole expression changed. He said, why don't you tell that son of a bitch to serve his time and keep his damn mouth shut? Right then and there, I realized how much visceral hatred the DA's bureaucracy had built up over the years. They hated Geronimo. They hated Cochran and Hanlon. They hated everybody involved in that case. As close as Peter and I were, he still couldn't help reflecting that attitude. I thought, oh my God, what am I getting into? That evening, McCloskey phoned the Pratt attorneys and told them he would take the case. It was a big moment for Hanlon. Jim McCloskey's name had come up several times. He was considered a saint by every prisoner in the country. Well, a saint was what we needed. He not only brought us new credibility, he also brought his own energy and talents. He's very strong-willed, very aggressive. Saint Jim brought us back to life. Johnny Cochran recalled later, We were so grateful to Jim. I'd given it my best shot. So had Stu. And Bob Bloom added great stuff on his own. 
and we still got clobbered in court. Legally, we had nowhere to go. Jim brought an aggressive new approach. Don't let that white collar fool you. The guy's a Rottweiler. He gave us new life when we were down. Context of white supremacy. So we'll pick up, we'll be on hmm, Gumshoe in a Collar. Gumshoe in a Collar. We'll pick up for our next segment. If you have commentary to share, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, if you have thoughts, observations uh, on the first portion of the reading, uh, let's see, I'll see if I can nab in one of the <clears throat> written emails uh, before we uh, get rolling. Let's see. Let's see. All righty. We'll grab in one of those and then we'll get to the other folks who dialed in. Uh, I can only say again, we will end where we began. Oriental James Simpson. Uh, it is amazing. I hope you all have great memories from Jeff Tubin's selection way back when to remember some of the names of people. There will be names that should be familiar. Gil Garcetti and some of the others that we should remember, right? They will be coming up very soon. Anyway, let's see. Uh, one of our first uh, first emails, let's see, from an investor. He wrote, uh, Exile Again. The Pratt attorneys wondered how long their client could survive the strain without permanent psychological damage. I don't think it's possible for any inmate to come away from greater confinement without experiencing some form of permanent psychological damage, no matter the duration of the confinement. Also see a recent article about a black male man who spent 22 years in solitary urges Illinois to curb psychological torture for stealing a hat and a dollar. This is from the Guardian, May 12, just this week, 2021. Eep. I think we talked about that last week, right, with Tupac Shakur. I uh, said so that should be next book, Labyrinth. Uh, but we talked about that being in greater confinement and how, you know, all the experiments and things that they could do to really cause long-term uh, damage to your health, well-being, mental fitness, all the rest of it. Khalif Browder. Uh, let's see. Fresh Blood. Robert Bloom, a crusading 
lawyer who was known for his successful defense of ex-Panther Richard Daruba Moore, he'd served 19 years in prison before he was freed. Daruba's case seems very similar to Pratt's case, falsely accused and convicted after three separate trials, long confinement, Quaintail Pro, and exonerating evidence suppressed at trial. Lots of these cases uh, with individuals who are classified as black. Uh, O.J. Simpson could have been another one, minus all the, you know, panther attachments. Uh, number two, Geronimo's older brother, Jack, had begun a new life teaching and preaching, including regular visits to the Morgan City Jail, agreed with his mother and devout sister Jacqueline that we can pray him out of prison. Last Thursday, May 6th, was the U.S. National Day of Prayer in which many suspected racists promote Christian prayer. Since I have obtained a little more understanding of the global system of racism, white supremacy, the more conflicted and ambivalent I have become about Christianity. In any event, I remain respectful of the feelings of other non-white victims. Amen. Do not fuss with people about religion, but yeah, if we have a system of Pro slaughtering, spying on non-white people and all the rest I would hope that we have better resources than we will pray and maybe pray a lot not to disparage or make fun of anyone but wow I would hope we have better resources or that that's not all we're going to rely on Uh, New Centurion Number one, Reverend James McCloskey, Centurion Ministries, uh, imprisoned innocent Roger Coleman, a dirt poor coal miner who'd been convicted of a murder in Grundy, Virginia. McCloskey was at the doomed man's side five minutes before his electrocution on May 20, 1992. DNA evidence tested after his execution reportedly confirmed his guilt. Mm. How about that? DNA evidence. Uh, let's see, gumshoe in a collar. Number one, Hutchinson. Oh, 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 didn't get to that one. We will stop right there and pick up there next time around after we finish with the second audio segment. Uh, let's see, so the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-9400. Press star six one if you would like to participate. So we have more. I think last week we were talking about uh, Lynn Atkinson, the white woman. Remember, she was the counselor and she <clears throat> did uh, try to do this honest report about what happened and, you know, give honest assessment of Geronimo's Pratt's thoughts on all this. What does the evidence say? He's been framed up and the FBI involvement and all that. And so she gets in trouble files her suit, dips, gets $100,000 and becomes pen pals with Mandela, who was mentioned this week again. Uh, and so this week we have a different white person pops up. Hey, I will help out Reverend McCloskey. Lots of helpful white people uh, around this case, sometimes in greater confinement. That might be as much as you can hope for. A helpful white person, preacher, guard, someone like, remember uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter? I think same thing there. Uh, let's see, folks who have commentary uh, hand up commentary for the first portion of the reading. Feel free. So folks still getting their thoughts together, spectating from first audio segment. I'll share a few 
of uh, my notes and then double check back in. Let's see. To scroll back to the first chapter we picked up at for today's segment. The O.J. Simpson references will begin to come heavy and consistent for the remainder of the book because we are about to get to the O.J. trial. I think it ended talking about how uh, they hated, everybody hated all the folks connected with this case. They hated Geronimo Pratt. They hated Johnny Cochran. They hated Stuart Hanlon. Like, oof, if you thought they hated Johnny Cochran before, oh my God goodness like wait until if it doesn't fit you must acquit now they really hate Johnny Cochran anyway uh, so exile again back to where we started at Uh, so speaking of OJ Simpson now we talked about the trial for OJ was not in Santa Monica it was in downtown Los Angeles why is that? They talked about that. They said, oh, they were pandering. They wanted the juice to be convicted by a jury of black people. And according to Jeffrey Tubin and other reports, not true. Uh, number one, it had to be downtown. That was the only courtroom that could accommodate everyone. And the earthquake damage uh, that they talked about in Santa Monica, that wouldn't be possible for them to have it at the other courtroom at that time uh, in 1995. We get er- earthquake damage here. Uh, they talk about uh when Pratt gets moved, he says he is moved to Tehachapi, 350 miles southeast of San Francisco. The earthquake-shattered facility had been rebuilt, but inmates lived in a permanent haze of stone dust in the thin air of the 4,000-foot altitude. He talks about how it impacted him uh, being able to breathe during the exercise and what have you. So that time, right after the earthquake in the early 1990s Bay Area, I believe, disrupted the World Series, still having an impact years later. Uh, let's see. So they talk about Tehachapi, uh, and they say it's set in a range of brushy hills and low granite mountains where the locals raised daffodils, gladioli, Fuji apples, cattle, ostriches, rodeo cowboys, and prison guards. How do you raise ostriches, Fuji apples, rodeo cowboys, and prison guards? Just the wow. <laughs> and this, I don't know if I've been to this area of uh, California that's, what would they say, like 350 miles southeast of San Francisco. Like, I don't, I lived in San Francisco Bay Area. I did not get down to Tehachapi. Uh, let's see. Over potato chips, they toss out the legal team. Told you not to eat those potato chips. You're going to come in here and test us and put that chip in your mouth. We'll throw your whole team out. Like, again, we've had lots of cases of attorneys for Mr. Pratt being like manhandled. Remember, they kept Johnny Cochran locked in solitary uh, early on in the book, and then they threw them out over potato chips and leaving people out. Uh, in the lobby to wait for hours on end. Last week they made Hanlon walk through the yard. Might have been unsafe for him. Like lots of abuse of everybody uh, associated with Pratt in this case. Uh, Let's see. They talked quickly about Hanlon, uh, that many of his rowdy uh, friends from the protest, or should I give it full? So radical protests had faded from style in the Reagan era and many of Pratt's fellow Panthers had exchanged sidearms and berets for attache cases and cell phones. 
I do want to just take issue with that. I know some of those folks, that is true, like Kathleen Cleaver, Cleaver uh, Angela Davis, even though she was not a Black Panther member, and others, yes, they have written books and become, you know, professors and all the rest. But for the most part, that is generally white people like Bill Ayers. We had him as a guest on the program, uh, Students for a Democratic Society, the Weathermen. Uh, it's white people. I mean, this guy bombed a federal facility. Then he became a distinguished professor at the University of Illinois. Um, I mean, lots of the Panther members like Bobby Seale didn't become like a distinguished professor or what have you. Huey P. Newton didn't become a distinguished professor. Uh, Asada Shakur didn't become a distinguished professor. David Hilliard didn't become a distinguished professor. Like most of the prominent people that you would know from the Black Panther Party, they did not, you know, ride off into the sunset and, you know, let's either let me put my leather jacket down and, you know, get my Wall Street Journal clippings and, you know, write 15 books or so. I mean, they may have written something, but it has not been some gravy academic ride uh, for them now that they're older. Uh, at least not for the black people, I don't think. Uh, let's see. They talk about uh, Stuart Hanlon. He talks about Geronimo and him being kind of a stubborn guy. And he wants to be in control of everything because he's pushed around. He says, uh, that is long-term prisoners. They start getting obsessed with control. They need it. They lack it. They're told when to eat, when to eat, sleep, shower, shave. They're told when they can have visitors and all the rest of it. And there may be some truth to that, right? Every aspect of your life is, is guarded, you know, even whether you have a toilet, you know? Uh, but on the other, I'm looking at this like, man, this guy is innocent. Like I'm not a lifer. I'm like totally innocent. Like they have just made up some nonsense and have me here. And then we keep coming with legitimate, you know, uh, reasons, logical reasons, things that they've done incorrect where I've been mistreated, where I didn't have correct, just court proceedings. And they just ignore it and rebuff it. So, I mean, should I be like a well-behaved, happy fella about all of this? I don't even have a toilet. Like, how should I feel about all this? How should I sound? Even when I'm upset about uh, visits and what have you, like, you know, I mean, I'm in solitary confinement, like, man, <laughs> you know, that has a big impact. Like, I'm just remember when we talked before he was in solitary confinement. He came out and it was like Charles Manson was like the only person that talked to him. Like, geez, like, even if it's just for human contact, like he's married, he has children and he doesn't have contact with them. I mean, just I, I don't know how I don't know what the correct uh, what the correct type of deportment would be in this situation like you've been in greater confinement for two decades and <sighs> anywho let's see So then they move. They're talking about some of the folks who uh, testify. They talk about Julius Butler and they'd said before, I think this is in Judas and the black Messiah and some of the other, uh, Oh, it was in the opening. I forgot like it, like it, uh, like it is with Gil Noble um, where he said, when he was talking to this black male victim of racism, who was a so-called informant, whatever for the FBI. And he said, you get in trouble. They catch you. Hey, you can do these five years, you know, 10 years, whatever it is. You can do this time. Or 
we can let you go right now and you know you can help us out we call you in you join the party let us know what they're up to give good notes that type of thing whatever you know we need you to do or got these five years you can do maybe you get a cell with a toilet maybe you don't uh, they said with Julius Butler they said <clears throat> this is uh, Captain Ed Henry uh, who was uh, formerly worked with LAPD and all of that and said he felt bad about this case he's a retired captain and said man it seemed like maybe maybe something was wrong here maybe this wasn't exactly right what happened you know with this case but he says uh, Captain former Captain Henry mentioned other activities by the mayor of Adam, Adams Boulevard that's Julius Butler twice Butler had turned in illegal firearms including two automatic rifles and a Thompson machine gun plus a thousand rounds of a 45 caliber ammunition and I just I mean that's not like uh, Stephen Paddock, right? The white man who gunned down all those people in Las Vegas back in 2017, the day O.J. Simpson was released from prison. That's not like Stephen Paddock. Like he had a full like military arsenal, right? So it's not that much. But I mean, wow, like that is a sizable arsenal for. I mean, they didn't put a date on it, but I mean, if this is way back when, like if we're talking 1960s, 1970s, like whoa. That is quite, I mean, a thousand rounds of 45 caliber ammunition, uh, 45 caliber ammunition, uh, two automatic rifles and a submachine gun. <laughs> like, I don't know. I wasn't, you know, born at this time, but I mean, wow. How many black people, uh, just regular everyday black people could get their hands on a submachine gun, a thousand rounds of 45 caliber ammunition and two automatic rifles at that time. I'm just saying, maybe that's one you can ask Mr. Fuller. He would veteran firearms experience to see how common would that be? Like how difficult would it be for a black person to obtain that type of, you know, ammunition, that type of firepower circa 1970? Maybe even with a black person with a criminal record, add that in too. Uh, let's see. Oh my God. I'll stop right here, then we'll get some of the folks who call. Now, as we're reading this, still learning, I'm a victim of racism, white supremacy. I've not solved this problem, so there's no reason for me to brag about anything. All of that said, like, reading this book it is nothing like it's, it's nothing to celebrate like the Black Panther Party at least my perspective just like the name calling and all the rest of it uh, that went on like we talked about before like a lot of the pitfalls of four wallism are on display in this book and just researching the Black Panther Party but I mean we join an organization black people we join an organization to help black people end racism ostensibly we get a black guy who joins and he's uh, a Vietnam veteran, two tours. He's helping us out. He's not doing anything crazy, all the rest of it, doing what we want to do to try to help the party along. And so he gets falsely accused. And as opposed to we could go testify or whatever, and then then the party gets disbanded. Right. So he's in jail. As opposed to go and testify and do the correct thing. We sit around and just nah, nah. Nah. <laughs> they, said, they said Bobby Seale, co-founder of the BPP, recalled the same scene. I knew, of course, that Geronimo could not have committed this crime. I felt very conflicted about testifying, but I followed the directive of the party. 
Emery Douglas, former Panther Minister of Culture, attributed his own long silence to Huey Newton's warning not to associate or help Geronimo in any way. I mean, woo. <laughs> we got a black person who could have been killed many, 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 many times throughout this ordeal in prison and no. And the reason we're not going to help him, I guess they, you know, got all the lies and rumors and everything, but I mean, woo. We got a lot of black person sit in prison for a crime we know he didn't commit because all that follow party directives and personality follow logic. I think that's why Mr. Fuller said he didn't say follow Neely Fuller Jr. He didn't say follow this person. He didn't say follow that person. He didn't say find the person who has the sweetest wardrobe and follow them. He said follow logic all of this started with help black people end racism how does allowing a black person to stay in jail for a crime I know we know he didn't commit but we're not going to say anything because he's a no count coon and they said don't follow logic follow the party directive which doesn't even exist anymore but whatever Follow the party directive. Don't help Geronimo Pratt. Like, woof. No four wallism. No four wallism. No four wall. And no personality either. This is not about who you think is the coolest person. And then I'm just going to listen. Follow logic. Mm. Let's see. Folks who dialed in have commentary to share. Can I be hurt? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, as I was reading uh, in uh, Exile again on page uh, 327, when it says that uh, this, this one paragraph, and this one sentence that says, the private attorneys wondered how long their client could survive the stream the uh, strength, the strain without permanent psychological damage. And I was thinking to myself, I've been in jail for 20 years at this point, been in solitary confinement most of those years. Uh, his first wife died. He kept, he keeps getting denied parole uh, hearings. And I'm wondering to myself, they haven't realized that he's already suffered uh, permanent psychological damage. Oh, he's also, you know, did two tours in Vietnam. So, you know, as the as the, as the chapter proceeds, you know, they they give him a psychological evaluation, and basically, he kind of, they kind of diagnose him with, you know, what I already knew, but actually, what most of the diagnosis in that next paragraph is actually kind of mild. I would have thought he would have been a little bit more severely damaged, but what got me was when uh, going into the last part of the chapter on page 328, uh, Hanlon told Pratt that he thinks it's catching because uh, he's been feeling depressed. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hanlon hasn't been through anywhere near what Geronimo Pratt was going through. I don't think Hamlin has been incarcerated. I don't think Hamlin is being Vietnam. 
I don't think Hamlin has gone through anything. So for him to, you know, say I think it's catching because he's feeling depressed is 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 the utmost patronizing thing that I could ever imagine him saying. Now obviously, you know, he's a uh he's a white lawyer, so, you know. Uh but yeah, so I I, I thought that was real ridiculous. Um on page three thirty five uh, in the next chapter of uh, First Blood, they use the term uh, old boy network, <laughs> which I often kind of find it a funny metaphor for racism, kind of like, you know, saying, well, you know, we're not going to say racism, but, you know, it's about racism. So kind of like, uh, you know, obfuscation of using the actual term racism or white supremacy. Um in the uh, New Centurion uh, chapter, it's interesting that this guy, Jim McCloskey, who was a minister, can have more success, you know, um, getting a retrial or getting his case look, getting at Geronimo case looked at than Johnny Cochran, uh, Hanlon, and uh, the other lawyer that was mentioned in the, in the previous, uh, in the previous uh, uh, chapter, Bloom. And these are like, highly respected lawyers here. So I thought that was pretty interesting about, you know, how a reverend can get more traction on a case uh, to get, you know, to get Geronimo at least, you know, get the process of him being freed than, than, the, than, the, than the previous lawyers. And uh, you was mentioning about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the comparisons and contracts between what happened with the you know, the Weatherman Underground and the Black Panther Party, both organizations that were destroyed, you know, by the government. But Weatherman Underground, like Bill Ayers, um, they become distinguished professors and, you know, the you know, Black Panther Party leaders are either dead or in jail or exiled. And the only one I can find that has some success uh, was actually Bobby Rush, who was a congressman in the Illinois district. Uh, I think he's been a been in politics for like 20 years. And what's interesting about uh, Rush, too, is uh, about a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, he introduced a bill uh, called the uh, called the Full Disclosure Bill. He's uh, asking the Justice Department to uh, release all of the COINTEL uh, Pro documents uh, from uh, you know, from from what the FBI and CIA or any other agency was doing to you know uh, all of the black organizations uh, that they've spied on and they've destroyed. So, uh, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, but that's all I had on my line. Much obliged, uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, I think definitely for. Uh, Stuart Hanlon to be griping or comparing his sorrow and sadness, depression about all this to Geronimo Pratt. I thought we've heard repeatedly, like not once, throughout the text. Stuart Hanlon, oh, I'm feeling bad about all this. Geronimo got no toilet and locked up. Let me go do a few lines. Like he's going to do a cocaine. <laughs> like, uh, at, at minimum, I guess maybe he could feel bad about all of this maybe but 
Woo-wee. Like your depression as a white man going home in California and you have your seven hour drive to go see him every now and then. And maybe you stop and get some cocaine then too. I don't know, but uh, it seems way different. I don't remember Stuart Hamlin complaining about not having a toilet and having to eat gruel uh, at any point during this process. But maybe I was, you know, not paying attention. I missed, I didn't read that section. Uh, the old boy network. We, you know, pay attention to metaphors on this program all the time, but, and I've we heard that metaphor many, many times used all the time. And as you said, to obfuscate, they don't want to say racism, but for this text specifically, I thought, unless, you know, my memory is way off. I thought it was judge Kathleen Parker. I don't think her name was Kurt Carl. I'm pretty sure it was judge Kathleen Parker. That doesn't sound like the name of an old boy, but I'm a little ignorant. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, who have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. Mo and Dallas heard him first. We'll take him. Uh, thank you, uh, sir. I will be short. Um, thank you, Gus. Greetings. Um, um, greetings to listeners and callers. Uh, thank you for the program, sir. Um, the uh, the the chips provided um, by the machine in the prison facility um, not being allowed to be shared, I believe it was. Um, uh, I think that was one of those um, arbitrary rules that that, that they could kind of uh, choose who they. Um, exercise it on, you know, uh, uh, kind of sort of uh, a sub-white, not say so long, um, and white supremacists were, uh, were and will be punished uh, for being off code, and they didn't discriminate uh, genders. I believe they, uh, I believe uh, in the text, the guards punished the, the, the lady for uh, absent-mindedly you know, partaking in those chips, like so. Um, and I think that was directly, you know, I also think it was directly related to the fact that they were assisting, you know, Geronimo Pratt. If it wasn't, why were the chips there? You know, why why was the machine in the facility at all? Um, many BP members um, traded their um, uh, sidearms for uh, cell phones. Um, I don't. I, I, I'm not sure if that was um, an accurate. I'm, I'm pretty sure some, but um, it is like a statement like that. Um, you really need to define what do you mean by many? Like, is that majority or is that like, you know, three people? Because for, from what I think I know, I don't know if Mamiya Abu Jamal ever had the chance to own a cell phone. And I don't know if there's a phone in his cell. I, I doubt it. Um, uh, those two things I thought I thought were very interesting, um, and I knew you know Mamiya should be free before I even had any full understanding of like any Black Panther members, and I never like I haven't heard many Black Panther success stories um, um, after the party was had been dispersed. Um, thank you, I mean my line. Agreed. I don't know what a so-called success story would be. 
uh, Bobby Seal came here to uh, Seattle uh, and did some talks. He has some cookbooks. I have not uh, tried any of his recipes, but he came here. He was not uh, introduced as a professor or something of that nature, a visiting professor at the University of Washington. None of that. Just came to speak, former Panther, and had his cookbook. Uh, I know Aaron Dixon ran for political office here. He did not win. Uh, I'm not aware of him either, uh, being some distinguished professor and, you know, fancy financial portfolio. I'm not aware of that either. Uh, let's see. Retired firefighter in Florida. Do you have commentary, sir? Uh, yes, very, uh, very little. I, I uh, came in near the end, uh, but uh, but I, I would uh, continue with that particular conversation and state that Bobby Seale did attempt to get a professional political position in the early 70s, but failed. Uh, I think Bobby Rush is the only Black Panther that I know of that had a substantial uh, professional political position. Uh, he's been a uh, congressman, I believe, for decades uh out of out of uh, illinois uh but to add on with the with the white white people uh tom hayden who was one of chicago seven uh not only not only was he uh, a a long-term uh professional politician he married into the fonda family <laughs> and produced and produced from my understanding the child that he and jane fonda had is presently a uh, quote-unquote movie star. I, I, I don't. I, it's a male. I don't. I don't. I can't remember his name or anything. But uh, yeah, uh, no. The the the, the black uh, uh, panthers and, and and not only that, uh, just about most of uh, black figures who was a part of groups that would, had the intent to uh, solve the problem of racial white supremacy. They're they're either in prison, dead, or you know, kind of like you know, just uh, everyday people, so to speak. You know, and uh, nothing nothing brilliant, uh, or you know, uh, uh, that they parlayed into something uh, uh, that was uh, that would keep their their their. Uh, attention in the public or anything like that. No, no, that did not exist. The FBI made sure of that and Cohen 10 pro. That's it. Thank you. Much obliged, a retired firefighter in Florida. Guess none of us have been able to come up with that lengthy list of uh, former Black Panther Party members who are doing outstanding things and founded a new institution at Harvard or some other Ivy League institution or anything else. Uh, incidentally, uh, Henry in Chicago, he talked about uh, Representative Bobby Rush uh, in Illinois on uh, the legislation he's trying to get to for release of more information about Cointelpro. Uh, always encourage folks be informed, local, national, global politics. Um, Representative Rush I just want to read his his quote associated with this because this is right what we're talking about Uh, so he says it is high time that the American people 
know about the odious and inhumane legacy of J. Edgar Hoover's Pro operation and its assault on our nation's civil liberties. This exceptionally important legislation goes to the crux of power, law, and the pervasive counterintelligence program conducted against American citizens. Pro was spying on American citizens, anyone who took a political position against the status quo, anyone who wanted to make America better was subject to being penalized, investigated, and in the case of my friend Fred Hampton, assassinated by the official legal arm of the federal government. As a victim mm, of Pro, white supremacy, I want to know with honesty, with clarity, and with no redactions, the full extent of the FBI's nefarious operations. I want to know the breadth and depth of the conspiracy to assassinate Fred Hampton and how taxpayer dollars were spent on his assassination. I want to know why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a focus of the FBI, why Billie Holiday was a focus of the FBI. I want to know why so many young activists were harassed by the FBI. What was the justification for the impact that it had on their lives? Finally, it is beyond time for a J. Edgar Hoover who was a who has a clear legacy as the number one assailant on America's constitutional guarantees for its citizens to have his name removed from the FBI headquarters. I want to shine a bright light on this dark chapter of our nation's history, and I think it is very timely and very important that we do it at this moment. Congressman Bobby Rush, dark chapter uh, in history. Uh, We talked about those redactions uh, before concealing constructive information. They are great. I will only say they bring this up from time to time, changing the name of the FBI building in Washington, D.C. And every time it gets voted down and it's not even close. We're not talking about some, oh man, we were too bad. And that, like, don't even think about it. Like, you can come back. Ben Tillman statue every time. Still up, chilling, hanging out, not going down anytime soon. Same thing with J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, last notes uh, get in then I guess we can push off to the second audio segment uh, let's see the Mr. McCloskey has so much access they didn't give a long list of credentials about this white guy um, you know he traveled the world and studied at you know various universities and got this degree and that degree just reverend okay (laughs) I guess he's pious and got into this criminal justice thing and trying to stick up for people who have been wrongly convicted Um, this fella has or is friends with Lowell Bergman the CBS news producer like again just wow like I don't know I don't know too many black people that just have that sort of random access particularly at that time even now 2021 like I don't know too many black people that just have random access to CBS news anchor and such. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Make sure I get in. Oh, I can't say it enough, man. Oh, you now you just heard them say uh, from Mr. McCloskey. He was talking to his white buddy. And oh, my goodness, everybody hates Johnny Cochran and all the folks associated with this case. Now, if that was the attitude before O.J. Simpson. Oh, my God. Like, and, 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 because they put everything in, con- oh my, 
we are ending right where we started right where we started OJ Simpson Rodney King your memory should be good I hope your memory is really really good on two respects number one Gil Garcetti now he was very involved even though he was not like the in person in the courtroom attorney for the prosecution he wasn't there every day with Marsha Clark and Bill Hodgman and uh, Christopher Darden and everyone else but he is the lead LA prosecuting attorney so he's the one that is guiding the whole show and meeting with them every day he's the only one doing press conferences during the OJ Simpson trial about the OJ Simpson case Gil Garcetti eventually I think I said this beginning well we are at that point where Gil Garcetti now becomes the person responsible for Geronimo Pratt not getting out of greater confinement because he's in charge at the LA uh, prosecuting attorney's office or rental and everything else so where we are at this point Rodney King Reginald Denny OJ Simpson everything in context as we're moving along uh, towards the conclusion of the text my goodness all roads lead back to Orenthal James the other component where you need to have a good memory many many months ago I think it was actually 2020 when we started reading Orenthal James we didn't start reading that book because you know we think or we thought way back then we thought he was innocent and wanted to stick up and show some support after all these years we read that book because Jeffrey Tubin's sexual misconduct the allegations that got him bounced from the New Yorker that's why we read OJ Simpson to begin with keep that in mind as we proceed some things you will just see the parallels continue this is Jack Olson's last man standing the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Gijaga Pratt context of white supremacy this is audio segment number two Chapter 52, Gumshoe in a Collar The Pratt team's ecclesiastical attack dog interviewed the three original jurors who now were convinced they'd returned the wrong verdict, then traveled to Corcoran State Prison near Bakersfield, where William Tyrone Hutchinson confirmed earlier reports that his boyhood friends, Hatter and Swilly, were the tennis court killers. McCloskey pressed for deep detail that would be convincing in court. Take me into their world, into your world, he insisted. Tell me everything you can remember. The skinny convict began by describing his own arrest for the shootings. He said he just returned to south-central L.A. from a lengthy stay in Seattle when a posse of ten lawmen converged on his mother's house. Some identified themselves as members of the LAPD's Panther Unit and some as FBI agents. It was another confirmation that the two agencies had worked together on the case, contrary to claims at the 1972 trial and later. Sergeant Raymond Callahan of the LAPD Criminal Conspiracy Section seemed to be in charge of the interagency arrest team. Hutchinson remembered that the officers had treated him and his family with cold contempt. 
L.A. County Jail, he'd been subjected to a marathon interrogation and almost every question was about Geronimo Pratt. Hutchinson said that after he'd named the real killers, Callahan warned him to keep your mouth shut about this if you know what's good for you. Even now, 23 years after the interrogation, Hutchinson feared for his life. He told McCloskey, Everybody in South Central knows the LAPD can kill anybody they want and they'll never be punished. The cops squash black folks the way you and me step on ants. He said he was also afraid of reprisals from the parole board and prison officials if he cooperated with the Pratt team. When the cleric asked for the names of others who might have been present in the Panther office the day Swilly and Hatter confessed to the tennis court shootings, Hutchinson turned reluctant. He explained that in South Central Los Angeles, the life expectancy of snitches was measured in days. Avengers had been known to strike deep inside prisons like Corcoran and Folsom. Some of Hutchinson's relatives still lived on the same block as relatives of the killers. There were gang affiliations to consider, family connections, old feuds, and resentments. If inside information about the case were used indiscreetly, someone could die. Five hours into the interview, Hutchinson finally gave up the names McCloskey needed. Harold Taylor, Thomas Holloway, and William Yin-Yang Yankins. He also suggested that the minister pay a visit to his brother Dwight and promised to urge him to cooperate. In the end, Tyrone Hutchinson was like a lot of other criminals I'd met, McCloskey said later. He was basically a nice guy from a good family. Whatever crimes he committed, he retained some decency. Whatever beefs he had about the justice system, he still believed in justice. He wasn't especially fond of Geronimo Pratt, but he felt terrible that Pratt was doing somebody else's time. He showed a lot of courage, and so did his family. He gave me my first important affidavit. McCloskey drove his rental car to the South Central Ghetto to look for the men named by Hutchinson. It was a neighborhood of storefront churches, abandoned shops, stucco bungalows, burned-out shells of cars, sagging mansions, eucalyptus and ficus trees, and front porch displays of jarcanda, hibiscus, and bird of paradise. At first, the gumshoeing minister felt no fear. You don't feel tension on a sunny day when you see neat houses with grass lawns and potted plants. South Central was a battleground, but you couldn't smell the gunpowder till nighttime. I just barged right in. I never phone in advance. It's too easy to say no. 
I just walk up and knock. But I was careful not to wear my favorite red jacket. A few years earlier, I'd knocked on a ghetto door and a woman with eyes as big as pancakes yanked me inside. Honey, she says, don't you know where you are? You're in Crips territory and you're dressed like a blood. The investigator cruised the battle zone known as South Central and found that few residents were willing to talk about Pratt, Swilly, Hatter, the Black Panthers, or anything else. Footnote 65 Estimated population 500,000, mostly African Americans and Hispanics. End of footnote It wasn't a case of Thank God you've come. We've been waiting for you. These people had no reason to get involved with a stranger, especially a white one. Some of them had had trouble with the law or were related to criminals. They knew how politically charged the Pratt case was and how the cops and the DA felt about him. Their strongest instinct was fear of the LAPD. I didn't blame them for turning me away. McCloskey phoned an interim report to the Pratt attorneys, then continued his blind canvas. Every door and window in the ghetto had iron bars and dark, heavy security grills that you couldn't see through. You'd knock, and this disembodied voice would say, what do you want? If you said, I'm investigating a murder, they'd say, murder? What murder? We had four this weekend. It was a spooky experience. None of the locals knew the whereabouts of ex-Panther Thomas Holloway, one of the men named by Tyrone Hutchinson, as a witness to the Swilly Hatter confessions. Patient tracking led to William Yin Yang Yankins and an angry rebuff. Weeks of field research produced the information that Harold Taylor now worked for an electric company in Florida. After a dozen phone calls, McCloskey connected with the Gulf Power Company and learned that a Harold Taylor was employed as a linesman in Panama City. It was a common name, but McCloskey wasted no time in booking a flight. He knocked on Taylor's apartment on Grace Avenue and was pleased to learn that the line repairman had heard about his investigation and was willing to help. McCloskey came away with his second affidavit. As a young teenager, I was raised on the 100 block of West 84th Street in Los Angeles. Larry Doby Hatter and his family lived next door to me and my family. Larry Hatter and I grew up together and knew one another very well. I also knew Herbert Swilly extremely well. Geronimo Pratt owned a 1967 
Pontiac GTO red and white convertible car. The latter part of 1968 and throughout 1969, this car was used by many different BPP members for whatever legitimate BPP business that needed to be done. I personally saw Herbert Swilly drive this car on numerous occasions. Herbert never did have his own car. Julio Butler liked Herbert Swilly a lot. They got along well together, even though Julio was quite a bit older than Herbert. I have seen Julio and Herbert together often. I would frequently see them talking at the taco stand near the BPP headquarters on Central Avenue, among other places. I remember one time when Herbert and I were selling BPP newspapers, Julio Butler drove up to us and gave a 45 automatic pistol to Herbert and told him to take it to the BPP office. No sooner had Butler driven off when police officers began approaching us. Herbert ran away in one direction and I in another. This happened sometime shortly before Bunchy Carter's murder, probably in late December 1968. Herbert Swilly and Larry Hatter were very close friends and criminal partners. They would do burglaries and stick-ups together. Herbert was what I would call a stick-up man and Hatter's specialty was burglary. As section leader, it was my responsibility to make sure that members were performing the daily party functions. When I asked Herbert and Hatter one time when I saw them together why they weren't attending meetings and selling the party newspapers, they responded by saying, We are working Santa Monica. I knew what they meant. They meant that they were doing their own business of burglaries and stick-ups. From my conversations with them, I know for sure that Herbert and Hatter were doing burglaries and stick-ups in Santa Monica for some time before the tennis court murder happened. Herbert was the kind of person that if he stuck you up and you didn't have the kind of money he wanted, he'd shoot you out of anger. At the time of the tennis court murder in Santa Monica, I didn't put two and two together by thinking or suspecting that Hatter and Swilly might have done it. But later on at the BPP office at 84th and Broadway, I remember Herbert and Hatter talking about what happened on the tennis court in Santa Monica. All I can remember now is that they were laughing about what had happened. I don't remember specifically what they said at the time. I do remember that Thomas Holloway and Tyrone Hutchinson were with me when Swilly and Hatter were talking about it. McCloskey flew back to Los Angeles and paid a cold call on Tyrone's brother. At 43, Dwight Hutchinson had worked for the city of Los Angeles for almost 20 years, had a spotless record, and still lived at home with his mother. After several lengthy discussions, McCloskey came away with another affidavit.
Herbert Swilly was a heavy drug user from at least 1968 until his death in 1972. Part of Herbert's thing was to go around town robbing and killing drug dealers for their money. I remember one day when he wanted money so bad for dope that he attacked his own mother, broke his girlfriend's nose, and tried to drown his sister in their bathtub. I gave him ten dollars to quiet him down. I have seen Herbert Swilly and Julio Butler together on a number of occasions before and after Bunchy Carter's murder. I remember seeing them standing together in front of the pool hall near 84th and Broadway. Herbert and Dobie Hatter admitted to me that they shot people on a tennis court in Santa Monica. I knew that Santa Monica was a big place for Herbert and Dobie to do their thing, meaning burglaries and stick-ups. I think it was the day after those people were shot in Santa Monica when they told me this. I walked into the BPP office at 84th and Broadway. Dobie, Herbert, and Tom Holloway were talking and laughing. I asked them what was so funny. Thomas said, These fools went out and shot and maybe killed some people. I said, Where? Tom said, in Santa Monica. I said, where? On the beach? Tom said, no, on a tennis court. I turned to Herbert and Dobie and told them that what they did was bad for the party, that it was against the party rules. Herbert replied that we got to liberate money somehow. With the Swilly-Hatter connection nailed down, McCloskey turned to the matter of the mysterious FBI wiretaps. If it was true that somewhere in the agency's filing system there was a tape recording of Geronimo Pratt speaking from Oakland on the murder night, the case was won. McCloskey reread the earlier affidavits, then characteristically started at the beginning. Trustworthy police sources in Los Angeles insisted that local Panther headquarters had never been tapped. The Oakland police chief acknowledged a tap but claimed that no records were available. FBI sources continued to insist that their own bug hadn't been put in place in Oakland until after the tennis court incident. McCloskey dug deeper and established that the Oakland PD had installed a telephone wiretap in the local Panther office in July 1968, two months before Pratt arrived in California, and that Cointelpro agents had paid between $130 and $300 a month for transcripts of the conversations. The arrangement had lasted until February 1969, when the FBI put in its own wire. That meant that every key Panther conversation had been recorded. But where were the tapes? McCloskey conferred with Bloom, Cochran, and Hanlon, and together they developed a new approach.
they knew that the FBI was one of the most frequently sued organizations in the federal government and in such legal proceedings, wiretap evidence was often subpoenaed. McCloskey began a broad canvas of former Panthers and their attorneys and learned of a dozen such cases. He went from city to city checking dusty old legal files but found nothing of use. Then he heard that a Connecticut lawyer named John Williams had donated a thick file of FBI wiretap records to the Yale Library for future research. With his assistant, Kate Germond, McCloskey drove to New Haven and was presented with ten boxes of logs. We dug into that stuff. It was the biggest tease in the world. We found logs from the murder night, but not from Oakland. We found logs from Oakland, but not from the murder night. We found taps on Panther headquarters at 3106 Shattuck in Oakland, but they began too late. We found several logs that mentioned Geronimo Pratt, but they were out of context with the shooting. That cost us another two weeks. The frustrated minister contacted the office of U.S. Senator Patrick Leahy, chairman of the committee that oversaw FBI operations and enlisted the support of a top aide. Leahy's office went after the FBI director with specific demands for specific records. Even under that pressure, the FBI insisted that no such records existed. We had to face reality. If there were wiretaps, the FBI was never going to give them up. We lost that round. Before his investigation was completed, McCloskey traveled 150,000 miles, including a dozen round trips between Princeton and Los Angeles. He tracked retired Pro agents in six states, gaining little for his efforts. He flew to Morgan City to see if Geronimo's relatives could dredge up helpful memories. Eunice Petty Pratt held out a warm hand but didn't seem to catch his name. She was almost 90 now and no longer recognized anyone except close relatives. She still prayed and chanted for her son's release, but she was confined to her little house in Across the Tracks. Her preacher daughter Jacqueline lived next door and did most of the caretaking. Charles Pratt, the family's genius, insisted on guiding McCloskey through his little brother's childhood haunts, including the football field where the boy known as Elmer and Gerard had started at quarterback for Morgan City colored high. McCloskey thought of Geronimo in his cell at Tehachapi and felt a wave of sadness. I couldn't help thinking about the days when he thought the most dangerous thing in the world was an open field tackle and how he was wounded twice in Vietnam and was lucky to get out alive and how he came home and fell into this deep pit. 
McCloskey titled his report a memo outlining why I believe Elmer Pratt is completely innocent. He opened by repeating remarks made by Deputy D.A. Richard Kalustian in 1972. If the jury believes Julius Butler, regardless of whether they believe or disbelieve the identification witnesses, Mr. Pratt is guilty. The case is over if they believe that. The jury must have at its disposal every fact which bears upon the worthiness of that confession, every fact which tends to show whether or not the confession is true, whether Elmer Pratt said these words. The jury is going to have to have every piece of evidence that is relevant and material at its disposal in determining the question of who to believe, Elmer Pratt or Julius Butler. McCloskey quoted Julius Butler's claim that he'd wanted his insurance letter to be kept secret. The real truth, McCloskey pointed out, was just the opposite. Only three days after he wrote and delivered it to Sergeant Rice, he told the FBI what was in it, that it contained evidence that could put members of the BPP in the gas chamber. The minister charged that the street corner delivery of Butler's letter was done in concert with his handlers at the FBI. This patently artificial staging of the delivery is certainly characteristic of FBI COINTELPRO tactics. Humiliated by Pratt, Julio Butler was all too willing to help the FBI destroy him. A devious device had to be created in order to give Butler's accusation an air of legitimacy. Both Butler and his handlers wanted to destroy Pratt, and that's just what they did by concocting and staging the delivery of the letter with the smoking gun against Pratt. Not only does this offer Butler a chance for sweet revenge, but it also enabled Butler to escape prison for the felony charges hanging over his head as a result of the Ollie Taylor assault and kidnapping. Butler was putty in the FBI hands. As for Pratt's repeated confessions to the beautician, McCloskey observed that Pratt would not have gone to Butler like a ping-pong ball, first announcing he was going to do something, then returning hours later to tell him he had done it, then go back the very next day to confirm he indeed had done what was in the newspaper. It defies common sense. The Centurion Ministry's white paper came down hard on the in-court identifications. The testimony of Mrs. Reed is one of the most blatant and shameful instances of an eyewitness filling in significant details and actually changing prior descriptions of a suspect to fit the defendant at trial. It is quite obvious that the police convinced 
both of these witnesses that Pratt was the killer and then manipulated them into molding the suspect to fit Mr. Pratt, the chosen one. The McCloskey report offered a logical theory on what might have happened in the 24 hours beginning with the tennis court shootings and ending with the execution-style murder of Bunchy Carter's confidant, the 40-year-old Captain Franco Diggs. Prior to Captain Franco's murder on December 19, 1968, he was a captain in the BPP in charge of Bunchy's underground. Four people testified at Geronimo's trial that the day Mr. Pratt left for Oakland, which was about the 14th or 15th of December, 1968, Captain Franco drove him to the airport in Pratt's 1967 GTO Pontiac. Franco, after dropping Pratt off at the airport, naturally had possession of and therefore responsibility for the car and its use. Captain Franco knew full well that it was a code of bunchies and therefore the BPP that no party car must ever be used in any criminal activity, especially one that could lead to the gas chamber. Franco also knew that if it were under his watch when he had the car, then Bunchy would hold him accountable for such a massive screw-up and it would be his head on the chopping block. This was told to me by a very senior L.A. BPP leader who at the time was also one of Bunchy's most senior trusted aides. Prior to meeting Franco, Tyrone Hutchinson told me he used to see Swilly and Franco together. Tyrone also remembers seeing Herbert driving the goat. As Bunchy's former top aide told me, Franco and Swilly were both killers. If Franco let Swilly use the goat and Swilly made the dumb mistake and used it for the Santa Monica murder, then it was up to Franco to somehow take care of the problem. As the aide told me, if this is what happened, Franco gave the car to Swilly, then it was simply a matter of who was going to kill the other. Because if Bunchy ever got wind that the goat was used in a crime of this nature, then they'd both be dead men. Franco was found dead lying on his back on a dirt strip between the pavement and a fenced business near 155th Street and Main. He had been shot three times, once in the back of his head, once in the neck under his right ear, and once in the left cheek of his face. The coroner's report indicates he was shot with a possible 32 caliber or 9mm. He knew his killers. He would never let a stranger get that close to him. The intriguing question remains, since Franco was killed within 24 hours of the Santa Monica shooting, was his death related to the use of the BPP goat 
car in the shooting of Mrs. Olson, given the above-related Swilly circumstances. McCloskey's 20,000-word report, augmented by 18 exhibits, concluded with a pledge that Centurion Ministries would work the case till it was solved. Chapter 53 Waiting Game In mid-1993, through the good offices of TV producer Lowell Bergman, James McCloskey and Stuart Hanlon were granted an audience with the top members of the Los Angeles DA's office. Former assistant DA Johnny Cochran absented himself so it wouldn't look as though he were seeking favoritism from former subordinates. The Pratt delegation arrived with armloads of documents and great expectations. McCloskey, Hanlon, and Bergman were ushered into the presence of the DA's chief of staff and several of his aides, including Deputy Diane Vazani, the matronly woman who'd been so eloquent in warning the parole board about Pratt's ability to foment revolution. After the visitors were informed that newly elected D.A. Gil Garcetti would soon join them, everyone settled into seats around a conference table. The hosts, including Vazani, were strangely silent. After a few uncomfortable minutes, McCloskey tried to make conversation. You know, he said, the last time I was in this room was a year ago, the day Clarence Chance and Benny Powell were released. Too late, he realized he'd blundered. I could feel the frost in the room. Not a smile, not a nod, nothing. I thought... These guys didn't agree with that decision. They're career prosecutors. They still think Clarence and Benny are guilty. The loudest noise in the room was a cough. Thumbs were twiddled, coffee sipped, throats cleared. Then the stick-thin Garcetti burst through the door like a man with higher priorities, looked around and asked, What are we here for? Bergman opened with a reporter's outline of the case. Now and then he turned to McCloskey or Hanlon for confirmation of a fact or date. When he was finished, the attorney and the minister added their own ringing declarations. Garcetti appeared to pay close attention, then said, Is this going to cause Judge Kalustian any problems? McCloskey stammered, I, uh, really don't know. We're not after anybody. Hanlon said, We just want the truth to come out. He started to ask if Kalustian's problems were more of a concern than Pratt's, but for once he held his sharp tongue. All right, Garcetti said. What do you want me to do? McCloskey said, 
we'd like your office to re-examine this conviction and whether Pratt had a fair trial. Garcetti said he wasn't in a position to answer at the moment. We didn't expect a quick answer, Hanlon said. We're just asking you to consider. After McCloskey promised to provide a copy of his report, both sides agreed to meet again. On the way to the parking lot, Bergman said he was disappointed. As soon as I saw Vazani, I knew you were screwed, he told McCloskey. But I expected a little more civility and respect. You earned that, Jim. I don't give a damn about respect, the minister said with heat. I can't understand Garcetti's attitude. Where's his interest in justice? I think we misgaged the intensity of the symbolism, Bergman replied. To people in law enforcement, Pratt is a test case of everything they believe in. He's a huge deal. I've worked with Garcetti and I know he's honest. I'm sure it galled him to be asked to reopen a case after an L.A. judge dismissed it without a hearing. Give him a little time. He'll come around. When Garcetti still hadn't come around after six weeks, McCloskey and the Pratt attorneys asked their supporters to nudge the D.A. with letters. U.S. Representative Maxine Waters wrote Garcetti that her Los Angeles constituents almost universally believe that Pratt was framed and is in prison only because he was a leader of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. U.S. Representative Don Edwards wrote that he was not interested in assessing blame for anything that happened 20 years ago, but a person still sits in jail maintaining his innocence. Amnesty International insisted that the interests of justice can only be served by granting him a retrial or release. Benjamin F. Chavis, Jr., the new executive director of the NAACP, called the case a glaring injustice and said it would be a very positive and important act for your office to join with Mr. Pratt, his attorneys, and Mr. McCloskey in asking the California courts to reverse this conviction that so offends our community and so offends justice and fairness. Six silent months passed before Garcetti announced that he was commissioning a review based on the McCloskey allegations. He assigned the task to a retired deputy, Harry B. Sondenheim, a pleasant sixty-ish man with frizzy mustache and goatee. The veteran prosecutor wore dark-rimmed glasses and projected the aura of a Talmudic scholar. Cochran briefed Hanlon. Harry's an old friend, and I like him, but he's an academic lawyer not a litigator. He's honest and thorough and, well, deliberate isn't exactly the word. Slow comes closer. 
three more months passed without word from Sondenheim or the DA's office. They're certainly in no hurry, Hanlon said during a strategy session. That might be the plan, Cochran said. Harry Sondenheim is one way for Garcetti to deep-six this case. The thing you have to understand about Gill, he's a political animal. He started out as an idealistic young prosecutor, but somewhere along the line he turned into a politician. An old story. Now, politics comes first. In the Pratt case, Hanlon responded, Politics has always come first. Chapter 54 Mule Creek In the California Department of Corrections ongoing campaign to limit Geronimo Pratt's influence on other prisoners, he was transferred twice more and ended up at Mule Creek State Prison 32 miles southeast of Sacramento. Footnote 66 Officially Stated Reason The high notoriety of his case, factors, and the safety and security of the institution. End of footnote Once again, he found himself fighting battles about toilet facilities and other matters that he thought had been settled years before. On Hanlon's first visit to Mule Creek, a two-hour drive from San Francisco, Geronimo told him, They threw me in a cell full of shit and piss, a drunk tank kind of place, and left me there for two days. Both Hanlon and Pratt boycotted his 13th parole hearing but inserted an array of psychological evaluations into the record. Mr. Pratt's criminal history is entirely associated with his political and social struggles and not with any kind of ongoing antisocial personality disorder or orientation. Mr. Pratt has been tempered by time, maturity, introspection, a family, incarceration, and a changing society. Mr. Pratt has the potential to play a significant role in making positive changes in society. Mr. Pratt does not currently pose a threat to society and he is unlikely to pose a threat to society in the future. Geronimo was sorry to hear that one of his most faithful supporters had been barred from the latest parole board hearing. Kathleen Cleaver, a law professor at Emory University in Atlanta, had fired a parting shot as she was turned away. You are conducting a sham. By now, Pratt had spent more of his life inside prison than out and to Hanlon and the other members of the defense team, he seemed to be losing some of his sweet reasonableness. For weeks, he'd been encouraged about McCloskey's discoveries, but he seemed to expect quicker results. Robert Bloom's valuable services were lost after a heated confrontation in the prison visiting room. That was inevitable, Hanlon explained later. 
Bobby was a great legal scholar and preferred to work alone. G could never understand his attitude. More than once, Pratt hinted about firing Hanlon and handling the case pro se. A few days later, he would call and apologize. Then he would erupt at their next session. The situation was wearing both men out. The Pratt siblings sensed a breakdown and reached out to their brother. Geronimo thanked them for their concern, returned their love, and told them he could handle his own problems. Sister Imelda, a social worker in Chicago, dispatched a bulletin to the spiritual family of Elmer Gerard Pratt. Every day, throughout the day, and especially at 7 a.m., affirm the following. Gerard is a perfect idea in divine mind and is awarded divinely protected freedom from prisons of any making. Gerard is surrounded by the light of Christ and nothing opposes his good. Tanya Pratt, Geronimo's niece, his brother, Jack's daughter, followed up with her own letter. Dear Elmer, Geronimo Pratt family members, this letter is going out to all of Geronimo's family members. Why? Because 1996 is the time to see Geronimo released from bondage. See him walking out of the courthouse a free man sitting in our living rooms, laughing, smiling, and embracing us. I am asking each family member to take time out of their busy schedule to pray and fast for the release of Geronimo Pratt in 1996. Aware that her plea would be read by her uncle's supporters in different time zones, Tanya Pratt included a schedule for prayer and fasting, pray, 8 p.m. California, 10 p.m. Louisiana, Illinois, 11 p.m. Georgia, Indiana, Washington, D.C., fast, 12 a.m., to 12 p.m. Timothy Pratt, Ph.D., still teaching in the District of Columbia, insisted that Eunice Petty Pratt's prayers remained the family's best weapon. Mama's teachings have taken roots, Timothy wrote, and are being passed down to the next generations. They will set her son free. He expressed regret that Geronimo continued to shun religion, but I light candles, have masses said for him, and say prayers every night for his safety and release. At home, in the little house that her children had built for her in Across the Tracks, Eunice knelt at her bedside and chanted words that no longer could be understood. More months passed without word from the DA's office, and McCloskey and Hanlon demanded a meeting. After another strained silence, 
McCloskey asked Sondheim, Harry, just to get us started, could you maybe respond to some of the points I made in my report? Sondheim looked puzzled. My memo, McCloskey said, about the case? This is beyond belief, he said to himself. It took me three days just to type the thing, and this guy doesn't remember a word? Sondheim replied that he'd read the report but found nothing useful. He just literally dismissed me with a wave of the hand. McCloskey said later, two years of work. I did my best to keep my temper, but I was insulted and angry. Sondheim was telling us that the DA's office didn't give a damn about Geronimo Pratt. That made us twice as determined. The crusading minister returned to the streets of South Central, dredging up more evidence, interviewing prisoners and policemen, poring over old newspaper clippings and memos. He sent each new discovery to Sondheim and eagerly awaited replies. He offered to provide any documents that might be missing from the DA's files and delivered the 2,400-page trial transcript with its voluminous exhibits. He put the offices of Hanlon, Cochrane, and Centurion Ministries at Sondheim's disposal. After more months of silence, the aggravated McCloskey wrote directly to Gil Garcetti. We have provided Harry with a large amount of material on the case. Whatever he asked for, we provided it to him immediately. There is absolutely nothing that I can think of that we know or have that we have not given Harry's team. Other people working with me on this case have expressed concern that Mr. Sondheim and others in your office are simply stringing out this investigation in the hope that we will simply give up. I am calling on you to reach a decision soon. It took Garcetti two weeks to reply that his office was solely motivated by our desire to be thorough rather than merely expeditious. Hanlon flung the letter on the floor. G is flipping out, he told McCloskey. How can I show him crap like this? What the hell can I tell him? The minister shook his head. Nearly two more years of constipated communication passed before the Pratt forces came to the only possible conclusion. The DA was jerking us off, Hanlon recalled later with his customary pungency. A dozen boxes of our material disappeared down that black hole. We wasted hundreds of hours turning up new evidence composing letters, finding new legal authorities. We should have known better. The DA's office was trapped in its own bad image. They'd blown a string of big cases. 
the McMartin School Molestation, Rodney King, Reginald Denny, the Menendez brothers. Then along came O.J. Simpson, a case that they couldn't lose, and they were about to lose that one too. They couldn't afford another public relations disaster. Justice didn't matter. G could rot in his cell. The Black O.J. Simpson, Gusty Renegade. That will wrap up this week's session. As I said, we are going to end exactly where we started. Oriental James Simpson. And wait a minute now. I said we need a good memory, so we all need to refresh. Now, what was our impression of Gil Garcetti from the O.J. Simpson trial? Have to rewind back, dig through the catacombs. I said... The whole reason we read O.J. Simpson, the run of his life, Jeffrey Tubin. Why is he not at the New Yorker? All those allegations couldn't behave himself on the Zoom call. Now, I said that that is consistent. All that Alan Dershowitz and Jeffrey Epstein, they got the new allegations that came out this week. Bill and Melinda Gates right here in Seattle with Gus T. Renegade. Melinda Gates is filing for divorce. It's reported that she mentioned in the divorce filings, part of her reasoning is because of Bill Gates' alleged dealings, that was the word that was used in the report, dealings with Jeffrey Epstein. I said, oh my goodness, what do you mean dealings? What kind of dealings? Sexual dealings? Lord, can they be subpoenaed to uh, Giseline Maxwell's trial that's supposed to be coming up? Can they subpoena the gates? Let's hear about it. All of that, again, the sexual perversion component of it, that's what we started at with Jeffrey Tubin, and that's come up repeatedly in the book here, Trainwreck and Sodomizing Inmates and all that. What do they say? They've blown a string of big cases. The McMartin school molestation case. I don't even know details enough about that case. I need to go and research. What is that? And then Rodney King, Reginald Denning, and all the rest of it. But I mean, got to talk to your children about sexual abuse. Uh, I'm going to get, I'll do two. I'll do double duty. I'll get in notes from one of our listeners. uh, And then I'll see if I can include details from one uh, report. They mentioned uh, in the segment, uh, the two black males. Where did I move the report to? Had so many tabs open, I got confused. Let's see. Oh, there we go. All right. So, after 17 years, sunshine and freedom. Benny Powell was up with the sun on his first morning of freedom today in a hurry to make up for 17 years in prison on what a judge has called a concocted murder conviction. I'm a workaholic, he said. I'm trying to get my business established. For Clarence Chance, who was also released on Wednesday, the world of freedom somehow did not seem big enough to contain him. I want to explore my own talents and potential, he said. I feel the world out there. The world is fine and I want to expand myself and blossom and be the biggest person I can be. 17 years ago, according to the court ruling, reprehensible 
Los Angeles police officers coerced witnesses and manufactured the testimony of a prison informer to convict the two men in the killing of a California Highway Patrol officer years irretrievably lost. Nothing can return to you the years of irre- nothing can return to you the years irretrievably lost, said Judge Florence Mary Cooper, that old boys network of Los Angeles County Superior Court before tapping her gavel and announcing Mr. Powell and Mr. Chance, you are free males. Their freedom was hard won. Volunteer investigators searched for four years to prove their innocence, eventually finding three witnesses who said they would admit that their testimony against the men had been coerced by the police. Although the police continue even now to say the men are guilty, the investigators also produced evidence that prosecutors had concealed evidence that a jailhouse informer may have been lying. Mr. Powell, now 44 years old, and Mr. Chance, 42, have emerged into a world that has swept ahead without them. Once their euphoria fades, their family members said they will face the hard task of coming to terms with lost years. And it goes on to talk about uh, Mr. McCloskey and his involvement uh, in the case from New Jersey and all the rest of it. But I mean, I don't think these folks are as popular as O.J. Simpson or even Geronimo Pratt. Same story they just didn't have the dream team now uh let's see folks who wrote in make sure we get the rest of our written commentary let's see okay we're almost done i cannot believe it speeding uh towards the conclusion of the text I think we'll probably have two maybe max three at the most uh, weeks remaining uh, in the text but we'll have to see uh, two more maybe we'll go labyrinth for next book Henry in Chicago said he'd be willing to do uh, the alleged manifesto of Elliot Roger but labyrinth I've really been feeling for some reason anyway uh, so gumshoe collar Hutchinson this is our one of our investors he wrote in number one Hutchinson feared for his life he told McCloskey everybody in South Central knows the LAPD can kill anybody <laughs> LAPD can kill anybody they want and they'll never be punished the cops squash black folks the way you and me step on ants mm, metaphor he said he was also afraid of reprisals from the parole board and prison officials if he cooperated with the Pratt team. This may be an example of the Voltron effect. My goodness. <laughs> that is like really advanced Voltron. My gosh, you got the parole board and the LAPT. <laughs> like, wow. Number two, before his investigation was completed, McCloskey traveled 150,000 miles, including a dozen round trips between Princeton and Los Angeles. Just another example of the remarkable resources available to suspected racists. I wonder what the cost of of that travel was. Excellent question. Again, this is not Bill Gates. You know, this is Reverend McCloskey. Incidentally, is he Catholic? Is this the Catholic Church? I'm talking about all this molestation. Keep going. Uh, Let's see. Waiting game. Number one, Garcetti appeared to pay close attention and then said, is this going to cause Judge Calustian any problems? In other words, I am more interested in my career and maintaining good relations with other suspected racists who are more powerful than me. Absolutely. 
Number two, U.S. Representative Maxine Waters wrote Garcetti that her Los Angeles constituents almost believe that Pratt was framed and is in prison only because he was a leader of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. Maxine Waters in 1998 wrote an open letter to Fidel Castro asking him to not deport Asada Shakur back to the U.S. Wow. Maxine Waters. Counter-racism. Uh, little black self-respect there too incidentally Asada Shakur also not a current distinguished professor I believe on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list unless I've been misinformed Mule Creek number one Pratt was transferred Mule Creek to state a Mule Creek state prison they threw me in a cell of shit and piss a drunk tank kind of place and left me there for two days the abuse this man endured reads like the book of Job talk about it I mean <sighs> number two by now Pratt had spent more of his life inside prison than out it made me think of all the countless non-white victims in the same circumstances who are innocent or received sentences inconsistent with their crime most of whom receive no notoriety let me give their names again <laughs> I never heard of them uh, Benny Powell Clarence Chance almost 20 years and since we talked about it before the photograph that has them for their release for the New York Times they are bracketed by individuals who look like they would be classified as white one a white man one a white woman it looks like that's probably who these you know unnamed no notoriety no hashtag uh, black fellas that's probably who you're going to need in this sort of situation we've got to hope a Reverend McCloskey or somebody like that comes through and you know has a few years and frequent flyer miles to dedicate to your cause the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate all the folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up uh, Moen Dallas uh, retired firefighter Henry in Chicago uh, if you all have commentary anybody else just put a hand up don't wait till the end uh, folks who are with us if you have commentary proceed can I be heard Moen Dallas yes sir uh, thank you um, this uh, the uh, I was listening and working at the same time, so I only had a chance to take uh, one note. So I, I might uh, speak on other um, observers uh, later. Um, but uh, what I wrote was uh, I, I'm not certain who was being shown the field um, that are. Uh, uh, that uh, Pratt played at um, in high school football, but um, I did write how his biggest fear was an open uh, uh, open field tackle, uh, and it went from being he transitioned from that to being wounded in Vietnam, and and then how he fell into his uh, current circumstances. Um, the reason I wrote this um, down uh, was because of the word fell into his current circumstances. He didn't fall into the situation. Um, and I feel like that language removed accountability from the people in the system that was victimizing Pratt. Um, just like how he was in danger on the football field and just like how he would 
in danger um, in Vietnam. He was placed in all three of these situations. He didn't fall, you know, and and he was uh, he was targeted. And I and I just like it was very interesting wording uh, by the author. Um, that's all I have for now. Thank you. I mean, my line. Much obliged, Mo and Dallas. Words are very important. And uh, yes, indeed, Cointelpro is not someone falling. I fell and lost 27 years of my life. That's not what happened here at all. Uh, and that was uh, the good Reverend McCloskey, those frequent flyer miles, you know. He had to go out to Louisiana and check out, you know, Pratt's background, hook up with his brother, and learn a little, learn a little bit more details about across the tracks, see, before he hopped on the team. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, y'all have commentary to share? Folks, maybe taking some time to think about it. We'll see. Uh, man, there are apparently, this was a big deal. Uh, this whole. Uh, hmm. Wow, this was a big deal. I guess this whole uh, case, the McMartin preschool case, like I said, I'd never heard of it until, uh, what in the world? I'd never even heard of this case before. So this is uh, investigation discovery. What you need to know about the bizarre McMartin preschool satanic sex abuse trials. What in the world? Manhattan Beach, California, in 1983, the mother of a two-year-old student at the McMartin Preschool alleged that a teacher there had sodomized her son. Eventually, hundreds of children reportedly described being abused, often in fantastical situations involving human sacrifice, child pornography, and satanic rituals. As news of the McMartin case spread, a multitude of similarly bizarre ritual abuse claims reportedly arose against other teachers, child care workers, and parents nationwide. Since then, many analysts have attributed a number of those incidents to a cultural phenomenon that's come to be called the 1980s Satanic Panic. More than three years of pretrial investigations into the McMartin preschool allegations were followed by multiple trials between 1987 and 1990, reportedly at a cost of $15 million. That sounds like a lot, but I mean, they spent a lot on the O.J. Simpson trial, and that was one person. The most expensive such process in American history at that point. That was before the OJ trial. Ultimately, no criminal convictions were obtained, and in 1990, the state dropped all charges against all the defendants. The McMartin preschool case continues to fascinate and horrify observers for numerous reasons, ranging from the behavioral experts who alleged that many of the underage witnesses had been manipulated to conspiracy theorists who, despite copious amounts of evidence to the contrary, continued to suspect a cover-up was undertaken. Wow. They have a lot of uh, different reports, and I had never even heard of this case. This is amazing. <laughs> like, uh, woof, incredible, the 1980s. Anyway, I guess this is another one that the uh, L.A. prosecuting uh, attorney's office botched this case, too, and wasted all this money. And rough time for the L.A. prosecuting attorney's office in the 1990s, I guess late 80s and 90s, all the way through with the crown jewel being, of course, O.J. Simpson. Uh, let's see, I'll check out a few of my notes and then I'll double check, make sure 
see if anybody else has thoughts that they want to share as we speed through. Uh, let's see. So we already got Mr. McCloskey, white man. He's dug in to go visit. Oh, wait a minute. Let me get it. Gumshoe and a collar. One of the first notes that I took, they talk about, uh, well, it's not one of the first. I guess I'll take it in, in context because I thought it was earlier in the chapter than it is. So let's see. First notes from the chapter. He gives the Mr. McCloskey, he says that he he had to learn, I guess, when you go in the hood, what to wear, what not to wear. And he says he describes this one incident where he wore his favorite red jacket. And he says, I knocked on a ghetto door, (laughs) not a regular door, a ghetto door. And a woman with eyes as big as pancakes yanked me inside. Honey, she says, don't you know where you are? Uh, And they go with all that. Uh. They're just big as pancakes like uh, I've never seen a person with eyes the size of pancakes now there might be some small pancakes in the universe but I've never seen a person with eyes that large and it's just that is a common racist trope uh, to suggest that black people have enormous eyeballs and enormous noses and lips and just really exaggerated facial features I think some of that might have even come through with the uh, witnesses testimony about what the alleged criminals look like uh, in this case but pancake eyes metaphors uh, let's see also when he described going to LA and going to different doors to find these witnesses and he said people would not open the door they would just kind of yell from a closed door and he said it was a this disembodied voice just kind of a in another sense uh, the man not where they're just all these different ways where black people are not quite people um certainly Geronimo Pratt and all that but even here like it's just some voice uh, from behind a door and even the 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 dehumanization continues because he's asking about a murder like murder oh we had 15 of those this week which which, who are you talking about just the total lack of value for life Uh, he calls it a spooky experience even that word spook who sat by the door uh, that is general or has been a racial slur in and of itself calling people spooky nigger type experience this worthlessness of black life next there was so much talk throughout the book about everybody driving Geronimo's uh, G- Pontiac GTO like man maybe that'd be part of the code like don't have a whole lot of people riding around in your car and you don't know what they're involved in or who they're going to be riding around with like and definitely share that with younger folks do not allow anybody to be driving your vehicle uh, let's see Uh, keep going. Same chapter. Gumshoe collar. Uh, six. So they mentioned these logs uh, that somehow just get lost. Where apparently there were Oakland Police Department wiretaps of the Panther facilities, but we just don't have the uh, transcriptions of these logs. Somehow we just lost them conveniently for us, since we want to say that uh, Geronimo Pratt was not in Oakland. He was out hacking and shooting white people down in Southern California. Uh, they mentioned uh, 3106 Shattuck in Oakland. That is a major drive. It's like, oh man, I've been up and down Shattuck like bunches of times. Like that's right, uh, Shattuck Telegraph, right in the main area of uh, Oakland, going into Berkeley. Uh, head right to Berkeley Bowl. Get really good produce right in that area. Uh, let's see next. Mm-mm-mm. They called the Centurion Ministries uh, report on the Pratt case the white paper. I thought that was important. They they use that name for a lot of different reports that might come out of somewhere that's not like an academic institution or what have you. They'll call it a white paper, even though it's supposed to be taken seriously. Uh, let's see. 
game. They again, uh, Mr. McCloskey, he has friends with uh, these different TV producers who are able to hook them up and get them an audience with the district attorneys. I just read it said the district attorneys, they're upset about the, the Clarence Chance and Benny Powell case. Now this is a, a cop killer. They said it was a highway, California highway patrolman. So they're of course going to be upset about that blue lives matter and all that. Uh, but it seems like, man, like so the prosecutors made up evidence and concealed evidence on this one and lied and all this other stuff. And you all are upset and saying that these guys still did it. <laughs> and they got witnesses like, oh, no, nah, they uh, same thing. You got these informers are like, yeah, hey, they pressured us and coerced the same thing. And they're like, man, they did it. We're upset, bringing the bad news, making us look bad. They did it. Clarence Chance got these killing black people. O.J. Simpson left and right killing black people. And Rodney King, what, what did my man say? They always get away with it. That was in Florida, but same. They always get away with it. Uh, let's see. And then I told you Gil Garcetti, we would have to have a good memory for Gil Garcetti, even though he wasn't the in-the-court lawyer for the O.J. Simpson case, he was the architect of that whole losing effort for the prosecution. And here he is again. And they ask him early on, like, man, is this Garcetti guy, is he concerned about justice? Or are you just concerned about your homies? Mr. Judge Kalustian and the rest of these folks making sure that they get to look cool and you don't have another case where you all get to look pitiful and pathetic in front of the whole nation. Like, uh... And his son is now the mayor of L.A. for anything, Gil Garcetti. Uh, we already got Maxine Waters, spectacular. NCAA even got involved in this case, if that means anything. Uh, Last chapter, Mule Creek. So they keep moving him around. They do the same type of thing now. Keep them, Keep those squatters on the move, as they say. I wanted to make sure I got this in. Kathleen Cleaver, now I mentioned she's a law professor at Emory University. I think we said she, Angela Davis, even though she was not a Black Panther Party member, they're like the only two people that I can think of, of this ilk, who now they're like professors or have been professors in some sort of scholarly role, right? I had to pause and say, ooh, they are both victims of racism, but Black, get back. Like, wow. They are on the less melanated side, along with Dr. Huey P. Newton, crack addict, all the rest passed away. But like, ooh, and I might even say that might be some uh, black misandry along with colorism there that if the only two people that we can think of, of this ilk, who got out and got to be professors and got to be cool along with Bobby Rush, who got to be cool and get out and be professors and write books and are not in jail and down and out and ragged or dead or whatever else is Kathleen Cleaver. And Dr. Angela Davis. Mm. Colorism? Black misandry? Maybe. Definitely, I think both of them, what they call it, the brown paper bag test, I think they would both pass easily. Maybe that's not the case, but at least something to think about. Let's see. They said again, we talked about this last time, like, I don't know what my behavior is supposed to be if I've been thrown repeatedly, not one time I just had a rough day where they threw me in a cell with some feces and I had to get through it. Like, no, 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 no. This is a regular thing where I am thrown in cells, no toilet. I have to sleep in my feces and urine. I have to sleep in somebody else's feces and urine. I get gruelly. This is a regular occurrence for me for 20 years. And they have the audacity to say, oh, man. By now, Pratt had spent more of his life inside prison than out. 
and to Hammond and other members of the defense team, he seemed to be losing some of his sweet reasonableness. I felt unreasonable even having to process that, like, what in the Christ are you talking about? How reasonable am I supposed to be after 20 years when I didn't do this to begin with? Like, maybe, we could say that maybe if I was out here shooting up people at the tennis court. Okay, maybe. I didn't even do this. I'm in Oakland when all this goes down and I'm supposed to be sweet and reasonable, whatever that means. After 20 years of this foolishness, I didn't get any cocaine. You didn't sneak me any lines in on one of the visits to help me get through all this. Like, tell me something, man. Like, what does that even mean? What should my what should my disposition be at this point as Geronimo Pratt? Anywho, we got more of the religion. Uh, same thing I said before. I loved it. No disrespect for anybody, whatever religion that they have. But I would hope we have more than religion if our opposition is white supremacy, racism, the LAPD, Cointelpro. Uh, any folks, anything? Oh, wait a minute. The man not, we got all the sexual abuse in. The metaphor, we get to the end, nearly two more years of constipated communication. What a metaphor passed before the Pratt forces came to the only possible conclusion the DA, Gil Garcetti was jerking us off what a metaphor another sexual metaphor, is that what they're doing? the man not delectable negro rethinking Rufus anything folks need to get in? yes sir Uh, speaking of uh former Black Panther Party members, uh, I, I have stated on this program that I uh, knew one pretty good. Uh, he was a, he was a uh, member of the, uh, of the Sacramento chapter. Uh, I mentioned him on the program because he uh, passed on. He was one, he was one of those uh, first cases of COVID-19. Uh, him and his wife moved moved back to California, uh, but he worked for about I don't know uh, several decades as a mail carrier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and uh, he basically uh, uh, assisted assisted uh, myself and a few other other guys in our efforts uh, in South Florida, you know that sort of thing, uh, but. Uh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, a 1967 Pontiac GTO was a very, very popular. I mean, most of you guys are too young to know that, but it was a very popular car uh, during that time and during the early 70s. Uh, I had a my, my brother-in-law, who he and my sister had been married since 1974. <laughs> he had one. Uh, and and with with and, and the the nickname for it called the goat, you know, it, it, it's it, it's the same nickname and whatnot. And uh, something like the Black Panther Party, <laughs> I would not be driving a car like that around because it's already popular in the first place, you know. And, uh, so that that was another big mistake that they were making during that time. I mean, wow. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I had to say. Thank you. Tupac Shakur, uh, I think his most popular album title, All Eyes on Me. 
said consistently that is generally not a good idea if you are classified as black in a system of white supremacy like oof, a whole lot of racists pointing attention in your direction oof, same thing with those vehicles I think Mr. Fuller, Dr. Kanban many folks have said that like you might want to avoid that flashy car like uh, it might not be the Pontiac GTO in 2021 but whatever the next iteration of flashy vehicle is might want to avoid that one can cause problems and certainly you do not want to have a flashy vehicle and then have all of your friends where you loan it out to them so they can do whatever like woo, right. lots of errors that that Volkswagen that Huey was in uh, in uh, what was that 67 was very popular to the police and they used to harass whoever was in that Volkswagen all of the time, you know, up until him getting arrested for the murder of that enforcement official. Mm-hmm. Gotta have a very thorough code about operating motor vehicles. Rodney King, man, lots of problems happen to black people in motor vehicles. Even today, Philando Castile, right to, you know, 2021, a lot of things go down in motor vehicles. So, have a solid code uh, when, you know, hopping in your, your vehicle to do some transportation. Uh, everybody's good? Anything else we need to get in? We got everybody. Didn't miss anything. Grand. We will pick up for next Thursday as we boogie on to the home stretch uh, OJ Simpson is going to become a little bit more dominant in this case as we chug towards the headline or towards the conclusion uh, Johnny Cochran's obviously super popular at this moment with the OJ Simpson case but then using that popularity to deflect back to oh yeah the most important place that I ever worked is Geronimo Pratt we got to get this guy out like uh Incredible. We will continue on. I didn't know anything about the McMartin school case, but they do have, I was sure like Netflix, I'm sure. And some other folks have got to have like, you know, whole 20 part series on this. We could have been watching this while we were under quarantine, Uh, but they have lots of, it looks like books and documentaries and reports and all kinds of things. Apparently this was really big deal uh, back in the day. Uh, The McMartin trials from uh, the late 80s in Los Angeles. Check it out if you have any extra time. That said, we'll be here uh, tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Get refreshed with the O.J. Simpson case because we're we're going right back where we came from. Uh, Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We got a lot of reminders about that last week in the text to E.P. Newton and others. Uh, Lots of reasons to keep our brain computer working in optimal condition. In addition to being sober, uh, man, let's have phenomenal motor vehicle counter-racism code. We're not loaning our vehicle out to everybody. We're not getting the most flashy car with the spinning rims and strobe light in the ceiling. Like, we're not doing all of that. We're not doing a whole lot of driving late and under the influence and all the rest of it. Smart, logical, counter-racist code for operating a motor vehicle. Additionally, with all the looniness that we have right now, 
be very alert uh, when you're out and about in public. Uh, oh, wow, that's a military helicopter. Yikes. See there? <laughs> be alert when you are out and about in public uh, because it has been not just a typical year on the plantation. It's been so much violence uh, and just unprovoked out in public, uh, particularly in the U.S. Uh, if you see someone being hostile, loud, uh, this is not a time for verbal confrontations with strangers. Uh, exit. Uh, you should be thinking this person may be armed. They may be with, you know, a whole cadre of folks who are also armed. Exit. Uh, if you did not leave your residence prepared to die and or kill, exit. Not even time to, you know, play around with all that. Lots of frustrated folks and newly armed individuals. All that said, if you're going out, you are sober, you're buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, we are trying to minimize contact. Uh, I never even heard uh, of these folks. Benny Powell, Clarence Cheney, I've never even heard of these folks. We're trying to minimize the opportunity for these types of things to happen. Whew. Minimize contact with enforcement officials, and we're trying to preserve our attention so we can be mindful of what's happening. All that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person We'll say it again. This book has been a great example for many things. No name calling. Uh, we have lots of problems, uh, lots of things that need to get done on our way to producing justice. But I mean, name calling other black people is super lame, super counterproductive. Mr. Fuller has it in the 10 stops for a reason. No name calling, no gossiping in there either. It's just two real easy ones. Kyle signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.